folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and hybridness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo-American establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, at .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book come out of the works at the farm's official store which is at the farm store that is the farm podcast all one word dot store and please consider signing up for the farm's patron you get two additional full-length shows per month on the lowest tier that's between three and four hours bonus material with exclusive guests and content and for the all access patrons you get our monthly zoom party regular State of the Union addresses, updates on ongoing investigations, them doing videos, all kinds of crazy stuff. So definitely consider that one, guys. All right. I have got two guests with me for this outing, both of them repeaters and among my favorite collaborators. My first guest is a jack of all trades. For our purposes here, he's coming to us for his ex coming to us with his expertise in film and synchromysticism. Folks, I give you guys Clay Vandevar. Clay, thank you so much for driving by again today, sir. Glad to be here, buddy. Looking forward to a great show. Absolutely, man. It's going to be fantastic. And also joining us is a researcher and musician who's currently presently working on a biography concerning Feral House founder Adam Parfrey. He is also the chief force behind the experimental folk slash electronic outfit Corwin Trails. Folks, I give you guys the great Samuel Corwin, or Samuel Vandevar, alias Samuel Corwin. Sam, thank you so much for joining me again tonight, sir. Thanks for close. Great to be here as always. Yes, it's always great to have you here as well, sir. Okay, folks, we have got an amazing show in store for y'all. This is the second installment in the Albacore Mystery Series. The name derives from the mysterious Albacore Club headed by John Houston's villainous Noah Cross in the 1974 classic Chinatown. Like much of the film, the Albacore Club has a basis in reality. In this case... It is the Tunic Club of Avalon, based off of the Santa Catalina Island. This is just off the coast of L.A. and naturally right on the 33rd parallel north. That particular island was crucial in the development of L.A. as the initial old-moneyed New England families that created the place were first drawn there by the island and its prospects as a resort. Eventually, the mysterious Tunic Club was founded there. In the early days, it featured significant overlap with San Francisco's Bohemian Club. Virtually all of the San Francisco Tuna Club members were also in Bohemian Club. At the forefront of this uh, nexus was Henry E. Huntington. He was probably one of the main figures Noah Cross was based upon. Arguably, no one did more to drive East Coast money into the sleepy desert town of L.A., and few profited from the latter intrigues depicted in Chinatown more than Huntington. So I want to read a little excerpt here from a book called Southern California, An Island on the Land by Carrie McWilliamson. Uh, this is actually one of the primary sources that Robert Town allegedly used for Chinatown. So anyway, of uh, Huntington, McWilliams writes, quote, The key figure in the expansion of Los Angeles after 1890 was Henry Huntington. I am a foresighted man, said Huntington, and I believe that Los Angeles is destined to become the most important city in this country, if not the world. It can extend in any direction as far as you like. Its front doors open on the Pacific, 
the ocean of the future. Europe can supply her own wants. We shall supply the wants of Asia. There is nothing that cannot be made and few things that will not grow in Southern California. Only a handful of Huntington's colleagues recognize the enormous importance of the Pacific or sense what was implied for the future of Los Angeles by the annexation of Hawaii and the extension of American rule into the Philippines. So yeah, this guy from the very early on recognized the importance of Los Angeles and also, you know, for that matter too, uh, the importance of future trade with Asia, something that we're only just now catching up on. And um, on a uh, more unsavory note, uh, he was probably also one of the inspirations for the incest storyline in Chinatown. He had actually ended up marrying his uncle's widow, uh, who was his aunt. Uh, I think, too, that she was actually some kind of distant relative to the Huntingtons as well. Like, I mean, a cousin, like third or fourth removed or something. So... This is another one of these old guard money families. I mean, they were from Boston. These were people that were involved with the Society of Cincinnati with Skull and Bones, in addition to the Bohemian Club. This is one of the most powerful families in the history of this country. And they still have influence to this day. Um, one of the more uh, noteworthy contemporary members who only uh, passed away recently was Samuel Huntington, uh, who was a close colleague of Zbigniew Brzezinski, though arguably more militant. Uh, he was the one who famously wrote Clash of Civilizations, which um, in theory had the foresight to see the coming cultural struggle between the Islamic world and the West, though it could be argued. Um, it's also setting the stage for the struggle being set up, but that's uh, another topic. Uh, he also founded a pretty significant foreign policy think tank at um, MIT, I believe, um, the Center for Policy Studies or something. The name escapes me off the top of my head. But this is a family that has hold, held a tremendous amount of sway over this country since the American Revolution up to contemporary times. So these were the kinds of people that were drawn to the Tuna Club and were involved in establishing Los Angeles in the early days. All right. So early land speculation is one of the most valuable pieces, or excuse me, the uh, early land speculation and one of the most valuable pieces of real estate in the world uh, ensured that this group was uh, pretty well off. And Chinatown does a marvelous job of depicting this. But Chinatown is not the only film to depict this group. In this installment, we're going to bring another crucial element the Black uh, Dahlia murder into the saga. And we're going to look at two films relevant to these subjects. One is fairly obvious. The Black Dalala, Delilah, uh, both the James Elroy novel and the Brando Palma film. But the second, not so much. It's the 1988 cult classic Society, one of the greatest body horror films and social satires ever made. So this is going to be an amazing show, folks. So on that note, Let's start the show.
All right. I don't really want to start the show, but I kind of need to pick up where I left off with the first installment of the series in order to properly set the uh, table for Sam and Clay here when we get into society. So I did Chinatown and I explained the mysterious Tuna Club of Avalon, which I just gave you guys a bit of an overview of here. As I was wrapping up, I suggested that several grisly and highly ritualistic murders committed in and around the L.A. area were linked to this group. At the forefront of these slayings is one of the most infamous in all of American history, the Black Dahlia murder. For the few of you unfamiliar with the case, I'm going to offer up a quick rundown presently, or as quick as you possibly can with this subject. So, Elizabeth Short hailed from Hyde Park in Boston, Massachusetts. This in and of itself is interesting given Boston's historical links to American, to the various American dynasties like the Huntington's that we just discussed, as well as fringe metaphysical movements. After a few moves, her family ended up in Medford, Massachusetts, just off the good old Mystic River, which uh, has a lot of other interesting connections as well. So she arrived in California in 1942, shortly after turning 18. Between then and the time of her death in 1947, she was mostly based out of California, save for a little over a year. She spent in Florida around the uh, Miami area. This would have been roughly around 1945. During her first sojourn in California, she worked at a military base, the Vandenberg Air Force Base near Santa Barbara. At the time, the Air Force was a part of the Army, making this an Army base. And her dad also worked at the uh, Mare Island Navy shipyard near San Francisco. So Elizabeth Short also dated several servicemen, all seemingly members of the Army Air Force. And with a variation of George in their name, which is also rather interesting. And uh, Miami, she dated Major Matthew Michael Gordon. Uh, and in L.A. area, it was Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Flickling. So... Over the years, there have been a lot of allegations that Short was involved in criminal behavior, but the extent of her criminal history was an underage drinking charge from 1943 when she would have been 19 or so. She's often described as a prostitute or a call girl, but there's no evidence of this. She did engage in premarital sex, but that hardly qualifies her as a woman of the night. Uh, conversely, it's also been argued that she could not have uh, easily engaged in sex with men because of a genital defect from birth. Her autopsy report did describe her as having a small uterus, but this wouldn't have prevented her from engaging in heterosexual sexual activity, though it might have been slightly painful at times. But such notions appear to have fueled the perception that she was a lesbian, but again, there's there's not a lot of hard evidence for this. Uh, so getting into the actual murder itself, there's a lot about this that's highly symbolic, as has been well known for some time now. But I wanted to try and bring a few additional things to light that are not often mentioned. So first off, there's the year the murder occurred, right at the onset of 1947. This was a highly significant year. The Kenneth Arnold sighting ushered in the modern UFO era, while the Roswell crash reputedly happened during the same year. The Dead Sea Scrolls were first unearthed in 1947, and the CIA was formally established then. Winston Churchill delivered his famous Iron Curtain speech, which many argue marked the beginning of the Cold War. 
And this was also the year that Alistair Crowley died in. But it all started with Short's murder. Um, I'll point out real quickly, too, there's also sort of the interesting parallel with the year 1974. Uh, I've often been kind of struck by how there seems to have been a lot of uh, similar events that paralleled uh, the events of 47. Uh, Julius Avola, uh, the uh, famous Italian uh, black magician, died that year. Obviously, Chinatown was released that year. Um, I believe this was the year that uh, Robert Anton Wilson had his uh, serious experience and possibly also the year Philip K. Dick had his Vallis experience as well. Uh, it was also the year that Blue Oyster Cult released the Great Secret Treaties album, which is also a wash with a lot of this kind of hidden history. Um, Sandy Perlman was a regular at the uh, Magical Child, which is the famous uh, occult bookstore in New York City that uh, Mr. Peter Lavenda frequented, in which the uh, Simon Necronomicon uh, came from. So there was a um, a lot of uh, fascinating uh correspondences between these two years and obviously you have the inversion of uh four and seven there um another interesting thing uh with the numerology with this would be her age which was 22 at the time of her death we're going to get into 22 more here later on so keep it in mind but a couple of things that strike me as significant about uh, the fact that she was 22 at the time of her death a uh, there are 22 paths in the tree of life uh, which is interesting but more um pertinent for our point here is that there are 22 trumps in the tarot including the full card which can either be marked as the zero or the 22nd card depending upon what system you're using but i uh, do keep that in mind here as uh, it'll be important here in a second uh so anyway Elizabeth Short's body was found in a vacant lot on the west side of South Norton Avenue between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street. The latter two streets are highly suggestive. Of course, the Coliseum in ancient Rome is where the bloody gladiatorial contests were held. While deaths uh, that occurred there have been exaggerated, uh, in fact, gladiators very rarely died in the ring. Uh, there's no question that gladiatorial games did have their origins in ritualistic human sacrifice. The other street is arguably even more interesting for our purposes here. This would be West 39th Street. The number 39 has a lot of interesting associations. Of course, it includes the numbers 3 and 9, both of which are highly significant in the occult. 39 is also the result of 3 times 13, so there is a connection to the most unluckiest of numbers. Interestingly, in modern Afghanistan, the number 39 is considered to be supremely unlucky. It's been linked with curses, shame, and prostitution over there. Supposedly, this association began due to an especially notorious pimp dubbed 39 due to his license plate number. 39 is also 93 in reverse, a number of major significance in Thelema. Remember, Short was murdered in 1947, the same year Crowley died in. It's also interesting to note in both ancient Rome and Judaism, 39 was the traditional number of lashes given to a slave. 40 minus 1. <laughs> and then there's the date Elizabeth Short was most likely murdered on January 14th, 1947. 
some dispute if she died on the evening of the 14th or the early morning hours of the 15th, but I firmly believe the killers intended for the murder to unfold on the 14th. So why? Well, in the old Julian calendar, January 1st corresponds to January 14th uh, on the Gregorian calendar, which is the most widely used calendar in the world today. During the time of the Julian calendar, very a very curious festival or a series of very curious festivals began at the end of December. They started on December 26th, which would be St. Stephen's Day, ironically. On December 27th, you had St. John's Day being celebrated, and this was for the Evangelicalist, not the Baptist. Uh, December 28th marked Holy Innocence Day. And finally, the climax was held on January 1st. The Feast of Circumcision. Yes, folks, there really was, and I believe still is, a feast dedicated to circumcisions. Uh, and we wonder why there are so many closet homosexuals in the Vatican. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, moving on. Um, the latter was sometimes known as, this would be the Feast of uh, Circumcision, by the way. Aptly, it was sometimes known as the Feast of Fools as well. In fact, the whole week-long celebration was probably known as the Feast of Fools. This appears to have been a Catholic variation on the Roman Saturnalina festival in which normal social order of things was reversed. The fool, jester, or clown has the same association. The reversal of social norms. Thus, deacons, sub-priests, and even Hair boys were allowed to lead the ceremonies. Often a lord of misrule was appointed over the festivities to further invert social norms, serving as a kind of mock king or bishop or even pope. In some cases you had the fool of popes even being uh, brought out. The merriment caused the by this feast led to its banishment. It was widely prohibited by church officials by the 16th century, Remnants of it still persisted in things like the Feast of the Ass, however, and that particular feast was celebrated on January 14th, the tip of the hat to it having been January 1st in the Julian calendar. So, in other words, Elizabeth Short was most likely murdered on the date of the original Feast of Fools and the later date of the Feast of the Ass. What's more, she most likely disappeared on January 9th, 1947. January 9th roughly corresponds to December 26th, St. Stephen's Day. And this was the traditional date in which the Feast of Fools began. So, basically, the whole ordeal with Elizabeth Short and her murder coincides with the original Feast of Fools. While much has been made of the similarities between her dismemberment and the posing of her body with various works of surrealism, which we will certainly be discussing here in a little bit, it's important to remember that a grisly uh, Gasglow smile was also carved into her face, Glasgow smile. This was surely a reference to the Victor Hugo novel, The Man Who Laughs appears to be the work that popularized the Glasgow smile. In fact, I'm unaware of a lot of references to this prior to the Man Who Laughs being published. Elsewhere, 
Hugo featured the Feast of Fools prominently in one of his most popular works, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. As such, I propose whoever was behind the murders was a fan of Hugo. Nor would that be surprising. The works of Victor Hugo, like many of the uh, Romantics, and uh, William Blake especially, if you guys have ever wondered why Blake is uh, referenced so much, uh, it's because, again, much like Hugo's work, it's just filled with allusions to the occult, and Blake, uh, his work has also been linked to serial killers as well, ironically, or not. Uh, Thomas Harris certainly had a field day with this in Red Dragon, but don't want to get too sidetracked here. Um, but anyway, with Victor Hugo, I mean, he had a keen interest in spiritualism, theurgy, and was one of the first non-Jews to even gain access to the Zohar. Which is also kind of interesting with all the stuff of the uh, 22 and the Tree of Life as well. The Man Who Laughs can be read in part as an attempted crossing of the abyss to summon a star child, which makes the references to it in Hugo and the Murder all the more disturbing. Over the years, a lot of candidates had been put forward as the Black Delilah murderer, or excuse me, Dahlia murderer. I personally think it was a group of individuals behind the murders, even if one or more or two of them did the actual killing. Probably the best suspect put forward is Dr. George Adele, who served as uh, Los Angeles's uh, venereal czar during the uh, 1940s. There have long been rumblings Odell was involved with abortion ring linked to Mickey Cohen, the infamous uh, godfather of L.A. during this time as well. During the mid-1940s, Odell worked for the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, where he was given the honorary rank of general. He even got a uniform and was dispatched to China, then in the midst of a brutal civil war that would bring the communists to power in 1949. Adele reportedly had dealings with both the communist and nationalist forces during his time there. Adele would later do contract work with the Pentagon and the U.S. Information Agency during his many years living overseas. As I'm sure many of you are aware, the USIA, the U.S. Information Agency, is effectively a propaganda office closely tied to the U.S. intelligence community. Reportedly, Hadell did marketing research for both the DOD and the U.S. Information Agency. This would have been after 1950, which is interesting in light of the fact that he had twice appeared on the FBI's radar for alleged communist sympathies. In fact, he was in contact with the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. in May of 1947 concerning the, quote, information bulletin, end quote, of the USSR. Earlier, he was described as a member of the Severance Club in Pasadena during 1924. Hadell attended Caltech there until he was drummed out over improper relations with the wife of a professor. The Severance Club was named after Caroline Seymour Severance, an early woman's right advocate and a self-described Christian socialist. She founded the First Unitarian Church in L.A., and both she and her husband have been longtime members of uh, the Unitarian faith which is interesting in light of uh, another individual we'll be talking about. His uh, family had pretty extensive ties to the Unitarian Church as well. Uh, it's also interesting to point out that Hodel had contacted the Soviet embassy not long after um, the Dahlia murder. So, yeah. 
Uh, so anyway, by 1924, Severance had been dead for over a decade, but it would seem that uh, one of the many clubs she uh, founded uh, continued in Pasadena. And this is, of course, an interesting in light of the fact that Jax Parsons was there and had close links to Caltech and also some of the charges that were made about things happening there by James Shelby Downard. Uh, this involved, I believe, occult ritualistic sex on top of uh, the observatory there while they were um, looking at Saturn through the telescope. Again, interesting in light about the connections that the Feast of Fools has to the Saturn Alina, the fact that Adele was apparently there around the time frame that Downard would have been making these allegations. But, you know, again, um, this should all be taken with a big grain of salt. It is interesting to note, however, that Tuna Club founder Charles Frederick Holder was on the board of trustees at Caltech until 1914 as well. So you also had a founder of the Tuna Club present there uh, a little before Hodel attended. So it does seem that there was a lot of strange stuff. And Holder would have been one of the uh, people in the board of trustees when they did approve the... Um, the infamous observatory that uh, apparently were used for thelemic rituals. So do with that as you will. Anyway, despite uh, Hadell's dealings with radicals while attending school, his later overtures to the Soviet industry and his meetings with communist Chinese while working for the UN, Hadell never seems to have been seriously investigated by the FBI for communist sympathies. Also, when he was spending most of his time in L.A., uh, again, this is, you know, during the whole Red Scare, HUAC stuff and what have you, when they were investigating a lot of people in the L.A. area, but not this guy. So, nor did any of his uh, apparent communist links seem to have affected his latter employment with the DOD or the USIA. So, this leads me to believe that Hodel was used by one or more intelligence service over the course of his life. As we shall see, he had extensive links to Hollywood, and given the services he provided in terms of STDs and abortion, it's likely he had access to some very privy information about some of the veeps there and the broader L.A. area. Hence, uh, he would have been a great source to keep track of Reds in a crucial industry and city. So, Hadell was first linked publicly to the short murder by his son Steve, a retired LAPD detective. Steve Hadell first began investigating these links in the late 90s, soon after he learned that his father had been a leading suspect in the killing. Uh, and also, I mean, as the story goes, he had seen a, um, found a photo in his uh, dad's uh, personal effects that looked a lot like Elizabeth Short, which is apparently what had originally uh, sparked his curiosity. Uh, but anyway, on the whole, Hadell was beset by scandal during the late 1940s. He was also accused of raping his teenage daughter, Tamar, which uh, he was tried and acquitted for. Uh, but this was after various smear campaigns were conducted against Tamar in the media. Hadell was suspected of killing at least one other person, his secretary. Uh, recordings from above placed by the L.A. District Attorney's Office in his home captured him all but admitting to murdering Short and possibly also captured him in the process of killing another woman. Hadell fled the United States around 1950 and spent much of the rest of his life in the Philippines, only to return to the States in the 1990s. So, 
again with some of the uh, stuff that goes on in the philippines uh, which we'd alluded to uh, previously that's very interesting also with sort of the connections that george Cor or roger corman has uh some of the uh, filmmakers linked to chinatown and some of the ones we're going to discuss uh, maybe not in this one, but in future installments as well. It's interesting to note that Corman was filming a lot of movies in the Philippines in the 70s and 80s. And uh, as I'm sure many of you are aware, there are the long-standing allegations of the Golden Lily funds being placed there. The, you know, essentially the equivalent of the Black Eagle Trust uh, from the Japanese uh, side of the war. Uh, but also the Philippines is a big area for sex trafficking and, uh, I suspect that's uh, probably another major reason why you see so many unsavory characters ending up in the Philippines over the years, like Mr. George Adele. So anyway, uh, before he uh, made his way there, Adele was a major society figure in L.A. He was obsessed with surrealism and a friend of the artist Man Ray. He and director John Houston, who had been a close friend of his since the 1920s, were a part of an exclusive L.A. sect steeped in the Surrealist movement. Other noteworthy figures active in this milieu included author and Fortean Henry Miller, another Hodel friend, fellow Fortean and screenwriter Ben Hetch, who certainly knew Houston and likely uh, Hodel as well, director Albert Lewin, patrons Walter and Louise Arnsberg, Architect Lloyd Wright, the son of Frank Lloyd Wright, and also uh, the man who designed the Soden House, which Hadell was living in at the time of Short's death and where the murder most likely occurred. Uh, fellow artists William Copley and Beatrice Wood, and the actors Edward G. Robinson and Vincent Price. Uh, the celebrated German expressionist filmmaker Fritz Lang also intersected with this crowd as well. Uh, Lang was actually really close to George G. Robinson, uh, who starred in quite a few of his films. And um, obviously, I mean, German expressionism was closely linked with surrealism. I mean, it certainly had a much uh, very uh, extensive influence on a lot of the surrealism used by Hollywood later on. Another interesting candidate for the uh, Black Dahlia murderer is director Orson Welles, uh, which is again interesting because he clearly had a uh, great influence from German Expressionism as well. Uh, but that doesn't exclude involvement from Hadell. Uh, Welles was a good friend of John Huston as well, another director who was heavily influenced by German Expressionism and his early ventures into film noir. Uh, Welles, Orson Welles later cast Huston in the lead of The Other Side of the Wind and 1974. Uh, this proved to be the last film that Wells directed. It was, um, they filmed it in 74, though it actually wasn't released until 2018, though uh, the filming did occur in the same year that Chinatown uh, unfolded. Uh, it's interesting to note, too, that one of the uh, characters in The Other Side of the Wind uh, was based upon Robert Evans. He's a studio um, Mughal, and uh, it's a rather unflattering um, depiction of uh, Evans. I think it was also the, well, the movie wasn't released technically to 2018, but had it um, uh, gone through, it would have been the first fictional depiction of Evans on screen. Subsequently, he's had quite a few uh, depictions. This is Robert Evans, the producer of Chinatown. Um, who, among other things, was the basis for the Dustin Hoffman character in Wag the Dog, uh, which we discussed in the uh, last installment. 
Hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, back to the different suspects for the Dahlia murder. Another interesting one is Norman Chandler. He was the son of Bohemian Club member Harry Chandler and the grandson of General Harrison Ode Otis. Uh, I believe Norman Chandler was also a member of the Bohemian Club uh, as well, for that matter. Uh, so this was the family that established the LA Times and was knee-deep in the land intrigues being hatched by William Mulholland and Fred Eaton. Uh, those are generally thought to be the inspirations for Hollis Mulray and Noah Cross and Chinatown, respectively. Eaton probably did have a bit of a uh, inspiration for Cross, but I think, as I said before, uh, Henry E. Huntington uh, was probably the actual inspiration, and Otis was another big one, too. He was another major figure who built up L.A. and was another guy from these, you know, again, old blood Yankee families. All these figures work closely with the Tuna Club. Henry E. Huntington, again, was a part of these intrigues with uh, the Chandler slash Otis family. And uh, like I said, I mean, these were all the guys that were probably the basis for Cross in Chinatown. <clears throat> so be assured the connections are deeper than Houston playing a fictional version of Huntington in Chinatown. And that brings us to the book Black Dahlia by James Elroy and the subsequent film adaptation by Brian De Palma. So the film provides some compelling clues as to how these milieus intersected with one another. I have read the Elroy novel, but not since high school. Hence, I can't do as thorough of a breakdown of it as I would like. A few points, though, I'd like to make. Um, so first off, Elroy, Elroy dedicated this work to his mother, Geneva Helliker Elroy, who was brutally murdered in 1958, uh, over a decade after Short's death. There have long been indications Elroy thought the murders were connected. Steve Adele, George's son, also thought his father or one of his associates may have been involved in the death of Elroy's mother. <clears throat> the book was first published in 1987, meaning Elroy reprises a lot of the uh, then popular misconceptions about Short, namely that she had been involved in prostitution and possibly bisexual. Again, the former seems to be pretty baseless and the latter is, you know, debatable. Uh, again, we have no really firm evidence on that. One thing, though, Elroy's book really nails is the cover-up of the short murder by the LAPD. At the time of the book's publication, the extent to which the murder investigation had been compromised was only just starting to come out. Sadly, this is one of the elements largely absent from Del Palma's film. Um, reportedly, Elroy, Elroy hated the De Palma adaptation, or at least what made it to the screen. Apparently, the original cut of the film was nearly three hours long and much more faithful to the source material. What made it to the screen was just under two hours, meaning nearly an hour of footage was shaved. Hence, there was clearly a lot of meddling in this production. Given the subject matter and implications, this is hardly surprising. On the whole, the movie still manages to be surprisingly faithful to the book, despite the obvious, obvious challenges that De Palma uh, encountered. Uh, besides most likely a hostile studio, Elroy's books are known for the Byzantine plot lines, and Dahlia is no exception. Probably the most glaring admission is the entire section of the book set in Mexico. The main characters, two LAPD detectives, namely Blanchard and Bucky uh, Bleachert, 
who are played by uh, Aaron Eckhart and uh, Josh Harnett, respectively. Both venture there at various times, and Lee ends up losing his life down south. A good chunk of the book's midsection takes place there, so that you know is a pretty major change. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Blanchard is played by Aaron Eckhart. Uh, uh, he ends up meeting his demise at Hollywood's uh, Pentecost Theater in this version, as opposed to being killed by hitmen in Mexico, as happens in the novel. I'm not sure if the uh, Pentecost Theater appears in Elroy's novel, and if not, it, it's an interesting addition by Del Palma. Uh, the Hollywood Theater was one of several lush outfits operated by the Greek Alexander uh, Pentecost across the U.S. and Canada. But Panagese was forced to sell his theatrical chain in 1932 to RKO Pictures. This came after his reputation was ruined due to allegations that he had raped a 17-year-old girl, uh, Enos uh, Pringle, in 1929. Uh, Panagese was convicted of the charges in the initial trial, but was acquitted during a second one in 1931. And again, he was repeatedly smeared heavily by the papers of William Randolph Hearst throughout this entire ordeal. There have been long-standing allegations that Pringle was paid to frame a Pantagese so as to pave the way for RKO to take over his theaters. A little less than a decade later, a 25-year-old filmmaker named Orson Welles signed RKO and was given complete control to make Citizen Kane a thinly veiled biopic of Hearst, ironically enough, or perhaps not. Um, another interesting thing, too, that De Palma did with uh, Lee's death <clears throat> that I find to be fascinating, um, he... In the uh, in the novel, if I remember correctly, he was his death was also the result of intrigues by um, uh, the character of Madeline, who we'll get to here in a second. Though in the book she hired, I believe, a hitman to kill him, whereas in the movie version she kills him herself. And uh, when you go back and watch this, she slices Lee's throat open left to right. Uh, that's a big thing in masonry. Uh, you know, with the whole thing with the three Jews and what have you. And it's also something that happened quite extensively in uh, the Jack the Ripper murders as well. Uh, many of the prostitutes killed by Jack the Ripper initially, their throats were cut from left to right. Uh, so I thought that was a nice touch uh, that De Palma added there. There's also supposedly a connection uh, to the number 39 and the Ripper killings too. Um, one of the victims was killed on it, September 30th, uh, so the, uh, that would be 9-30-39, and another one was killed on August 31st, 38 31 39 again, and another uh, victim suspected of being uh, killed by the Ripper, but not among the official five women linked to the Ripper killings, uh, was stabbed 39 times, so... I don't know, you know, again, how credible this is. It has really is linked uh, to the Dahlia murders and what have you, but I kind of think Del Palma maybe <laughs> believed that, which is one of the reasons why he uh, included that really specific um, way that Lee died in the film version and uh, definitely constituted a pretty substantial change, I believe, from how he died in the uh, the book. 
Uh, and again, it's also, again, interesting with the casting of Aaron Eckhart uh, in the role, too. Of course, he would go on to play Harvey Dent, I think, maybe a year or something afterwards in uh, the uh, Batman uh, version, film version featuring Heath Ledger as the Joker. Was probably the most famous Glasgow smile of all times. And um, the Joker uh, was actually... the. Uh, the character of the Joker was actually based upon the 1928 film version of The Man Who Laughs and the uh, depiction of the main character in that who has a Glasgow smile. So this whole thing is really closely related. And of course, I don't need to remind you guys, but Jack Nicholson also famously played the Joker too. And it's, just, it's something that we will definitely return to uh, at some point here in this series. But uh, just to keep it in mind. Anyway, some of the other changes uh, that De Palma made are also interesting. Uh, he plays up the notion that Short was an aspiring actress, I think a little bit more so than Elroy did in the book. Uh, this leads to some interesting plot points, most notably the perception that Short and other lower tier actresses were being used to film pornographic films, sometimes on old movie sets. As I noted repeatedly in the Chinatown episode, there were persistent rumors that Roman Polanski and associates, most notably John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas, were involved in filming porn with various Hollywood VIPs. Um, this also, uh, the um, Black uh, Dahlia uh, novel was the first in a quartet uh, that James Elroy wrote. Uh, the third book in this quartet is a really famous one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's called L.A. Confidential. It was, in fact, the basis for the Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce movie that came out in 1997. And you probably you guys can probably remember pornographic films involving women cut to look like Hollywood actresses was a storyline in that as well. So definitely this is something Elroy has come to time again uh, in this series. I think it's very important for a variety of reasons. Uh, we'll probably get to a little bit of that here, but um, it's very interesting, especially again, if the allegations are true about Polanski in the 1960s. De Palma implies that this is a process that's been going on in Hollywood for some time in the Dahlia film. It's interesting to note, too, that Tamara Haddell, George's daughter, was close to Michelle Phillips and knew John Phillips fairly well. In fact, uh, she might have actually been the one who set Michelle Phillips up with John Phillips. As such, I think De Palma is making a point uh, by playing this up in the plot. And, of course, Elroy, I mean, obviously had uh, some really... And pointed reasons for including it in both books as well and um i'm not familiar as familiar with the other two books in the quartet but it wouldn't surprise me if that's also a reference in them as well so another uh connection to the man who lasts which i think elroy or another thing that's interesting to know too is i think elroy was the first one to make the connection to the man who lasts and uh the dahlia murders in his novel to my mind one of the biggest flaws in Steve Hiddell's account of his father as Short's killer is his persistence in linking the Glasgow smile to something other than this work. Uh, but the presence of the Glasgow and the presence of the Glasgow smile alone, or excuse me, the presence of the Glasgow smile with the dates, Short's age, and I mean all the other stuff I outlined out in the saga, it just I'm convinced whoever was behind the Dahlia killings was familiar with Hugo's work. The references are just two pointed guys. They just really are. 
Uh, presumably, Steve Adele has downplayed these connections because he can't find evidence of his father having a Hugo fetish. Uh, but Orson Welles surely did. One of his most celebrated radio dramas, uh, despite the one, aside from the one you guys all know, uh, was an adaptation of Les Miserables. So uh, this is another reason why I think the uh, idea of Wells being involved in the crime up to some point has merit. Uh, and then also there's the old lady from Shanghai thing too, which is a fascinating thing linked to all this as well. But anyway, probably the most curious change uh, De Palma made uh, in the film is in regards to the name of Madeline's family. Uh, this um, is the chick in the uh, in the film, in the book, who looks uh, remarkably like Elizabeth Short, um, not Erin uh, uh, Eckhart's wife, played by Scarlett Johansson. This is the one Hilary Swank plays, the brunette. So anyway, Madeline's family name in the book, uh, they were referred to as Sprague, while in the film, it's Lynn Scott. I'm not entirely sure why the change was made. Originally, I thought De Palma was simply trying to make the family name more Scottish, uh, but Lynn Scott is actually an English name originating from Devon. Incidentally, this is also where Sprague is said to have originated from as well. So we have two names from uh, the historic Shire of Devon, which happens to be bordered by uh, the UK's Somerset to the east and Cornwall to the west. Uh, both of these areas have long been linked to surviving Celtic traditions, especially Cornwall. Cornish folk, along with the Welsh, were among those closest to the old traditions after the Roman conquest on the main British Isle. So it's very interesting there. The linkage of the name in either case to the Devon region gives us some indications of whom De Palma and Elroy are getting at. It's later revealed that the family patriarch Emmett Sprague or Lynn Scott is involved in an incestuous relationship with Madeline while his wife and his old business partner, a Scotsman named George Tilden, um, are who murdered Elizabeth Short. Emmett made his money in real estate and is said to have owned the housing development beneath the legendary Highwood Land sign. So the most obvious historical basis for Emmett's character is a guy named Hobart Johnston Whitley, more commonly known as H.G. Whitley. The Whitley family name has deep roots to Devon as well as Scotland. H.J. was a developer tied in with the Tuna Club. In fact, his company sponsored one of their annual prizes, and he was the man who developed the subdivision featuring the Hollywood land sign. It may even have been his ideal to create the thing in the first place. This is one of the reasons why he's one of two individuals often referred to as Mr. Hollywood. Beyond this, he was one of the main developers that laid the foundation for Hollywood. And I also just recently found out he had a son, his, in fact, his only son, that he, who was named Ross Emmett Whitley. So there's actually an Emmett Whitley out there, with, uh, at least in terms of the middle name. So, uh, Whitley as Emmett seems to uh, be pretty airtight then, right? Well, there's just one glaring problem with this linkage. H.J. Whitley died in 1931, while Short wasn't murdered until 47. About the time of his death, Whitley was broke, hence the family were no longer major players in L.A., 
This leads me to believe that in addition to Whitley, another man was used as the basis for Emmett's character. He was also a real estate developer, and he was later dubbed Mr. Hollywood as well. This would be Charles E. Toberman, who was instrumental in developing Hollywood Hills and several of its subdivisions, most notably the Outpost. And when you know it, he put up a sign like the Hollywood sign to promote the Outpost as well. And he was also close to the Scottish actor Ernst Torrance, who worked closely with Toberman during his early days in Hollywood. Now, I've been in, unable to link Toberman directly to the Tuna Club. However, his family was part of the old L.A. gentry. His uncle, James Toberman, had previously been L.A.'s mayor during the late 19th century. In fact, I think James Toberman actually been sent out there by Abraham Lincoln initially, of all people. So, I mean, this family had some connections going back to the Civil War, at least. Uh, Charles Toberman got his start in real estate around 1902, and he was a major player by 1912, such, I mean, he was almost surely a part of the syndicate of real estate developers organized by Tuna Club member Henry E. Huntington. Further, Toberman appears to have acquired a lot of his Hollywood holdings from General Harrison Otis, father-in-law of Harry Chandler, and the grandfather of Norman Chandler, and other suspect for the uh, Dahlia murders. Uh, and both Chandlers also belonged to the Bohemian Club, as did Huntington. So there's all those connections. And finally, there's a good chance that Toberman knew George Hadell in some capacity. They shared at least one mutual acquaintance. Lloyd Wright, son of Frank. It was Lloyd Wright who designed the Soden House Hadell later owned and potentially committed uh, the Dahlia murder in. Adele was a huge fan of Frank Lloyd Wright and commissioned Lloyd to do renovations on the house. They were both active in LA's uh, surrealist circles as well. Some other interesting points too, both Frank Lloyd Wright and Lloyd Wright were just huge in building up uh, LA and its specific, you know, some of the uh, quirks of its architecture later on. Of course, he introduced the Mayan revival style that was really famous, um, that subsequently became tremendously famous. And also, too, um, besides the houses that were directly built by the Wrights themselves, two other popular architects in Southern California, and this you know kind of time frame we're talking about between the World Wars, uh, were R.M. Schindler and Richard uh, Neutra, I believe. Uh, both of these guys were very close to Frank Lloyd Wright. In fact, Schindler had actually been his uh, right-hand man for a while. They had both trained under him, and their styles are very similar. Um, there are definitely a couple of houses in the L.A. area that look very much like a uh, Wright house that were actually designed by one of these two individuals. So, uh, and also, again, given that Toberman's rise was also... Um, it coincided roughly with the same time frame between the world wars it uh further to my mind cements the fact that there was probably a, a very close working relationship between toberman the wright and the wright family and some of the other architects that were close to them um another thing too i will point out about frank lloyd wright that's interesting in this context he was a huge victor hugo fan uh, in fact, he actually cited Hugo as being a major influence on his approach to architecture. So that's very interesting. Anyway, Lloyd Wright finished the Soden House in 1926. 
His next project was the Hollywood Bowl, which he initially did in the Mayan style of the Soden House. The Hollywood Bowl was developed by Toberman, who surely would have hired Wright for that. And Brother Toberman was close to Tuna Club member Cecil B. DeMille, who was Frank Lloyd Wright's closest contact in Hollywood. Uh, in fact, Wright built a house for DeMille's niece, I think it was. So Wright and his family are they're a scarlet thread that just runs through so much of this. His granddaughter was actress Anne Baxter, most well-known for playing the title role in All About Eve and uh, her later turn in The Ten Commandments. One of her earliest roles was in The Piped Piper, adaptation of the famous legend, which probably featured a clown uh, or some variation uh, pulling children away to murder them. It was directed by Irving Pichel. The listener will recall from the first installment of this that Pichel was also a member of the Bohemian Club, and his directorial debut was a film called The Most Dangerous Game, which I suspect was inspired by the Toon Club and uh, the Santa Catalina Islands. Another early role of Baxter's was in The Magnificent Ambersons, a movie written and directed by Orson Welles. And finally... In 1953, she starred in a little picture called The Blue Gardenia. The movie was directed by Fritz Lang, who was active at Hodel's Surrealist Circles and at the vanguard of German Expressionist filmmakers. This movement that had produced the famous 1928 adaptation of The Man Who Last, which inspired The Joker. But beyond this, as the title implies, this is The Blue Gardenia I'm talking about, the film was inspired by the Black Dahlia murder. It was meant as a criticism of the sensationalism of the media in regards to the crime. So, to recap, Frank Lloyd Wright knew at least one Tuna Club member, Cecil B. DeMille, and also Hodel. Or, yes, yes, he did know Hodel, not nearly as well as his son did, but to some extent. His son knew Hodel uh, even better, as I said, and his granddaughter was in a movie, one movie directed by Orson Welles and another about the Black Dahlia murder. To say nothing of how his Mayan revival style has been used repeatedly in films about the Black Dahlia murder and or the Tuna Club and films that have been inspired by them. And of course, there was the brutal ritualistic murder of his mistress in Wisconsin and his studio. But this was surely all a coincidence, right? Um, on the note, too, I'll point out just a few examples of this. L.A. Confidential, Pierce Patchett's house was not designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. It was designed by um, Neutra, I believe, one of the guys I just mentioned, who was uh, one of Wright's acolytes. And I believe the Soden House does appear in LA Confidential at some point. And if you look at Pierce Patchett, he looks remarkably like George Hadell. Uh, this is also true of the Rocketeer, uh, where the main villain, uh, Neville Sinclair, I believe, played by Timothy Dalton, also looks remarkably like George Adele and, and um, lives in a residency based on the Ennis House, which Frank Lloyd Wright designed. Um, the David Lynch movie, uh, Mulholland Drive, I believe also features architecture uh, inspired somewhat by Frank Lloyd Wright's work. And possibly the most sinister connection though I can think of, uh, as I had noted before, I think the most dangerous game might have had some connections to uh, the Tuna Club of Avalon. Um, 
a particular franchise has roughly based much of its storyline off the most dangerous game. That would be the Predator franchise, which is basically the same storyline of men being hunted by uh, or human beings being used as game animals. Uh, it's interesting to note that uh, beginning in the second movie and going into a lot of the later Predator movies, um, they also appear to be big fans of the Mayan revival style popularized by Frank Lloyd Wright. So, um, almost like we're being told something with that, huh? <laughs> I guess that's just insane, though, right? I mean, surely a guy like Toberman wouldn't stoop to associating with someone like George Hodel, and I'm guessing neither would Frank Lloyd Wright either, right? Well, in the case of Toberman, eh, might be a bit uh, harder to dispel such notions. So let's consider a passage from Sherry Seymour's Committee of the States, an account of Christian identity adherent and right-wing terrorist William Potter Gale. Gale was instrumental in establishing the militia movement. He was ranked to acts of domestic terrorism for decades, and naturally, he never did any time of jail. He was also a military intelligence officer, served under Charles Willoughby and Douglas MacArthur during the Second World War, uh, one point in the Philippines. So there's also that whole connection to that region of the world as well with Gale. Anyway, this is from page 85 of Seymour's excellent book, The Committee of the States. Quote, Gale collected himself and slumped forward his elbows on his knees. Anyways, I had just been introduced to the element, you might say, living in Hollywood and meeting with people I didn't even know were connected with them, like one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood. My offices were in his building when I was with Waddell and Reed. He owned the outpost estate development. I bought my home through his real estate agency. He owned the Masonic Temple on Hollywood Boulevard. He built it. He owned the first federal savings and loan building on Hollywood Island. What was his name, Seymour asked. What was his name, Seymour asked. It was a long German name. I sent him some material from my office to his executive suite, and he said, oh, you're a friend of Gerald Smith. And I said, yeah, and he said, so am I, but don't let anyone know it. He liked me, and he liked Douglas MacArthur. Gerald Smith had all those millionaire people supporting him, end quote. There's no question Toberman is who Gale was referring to. It's already noted that he was the one who developed the outpost estate. Toberman was also huge in Freemasonry. In fact, he was the head of the Hollywood Masonic Lodge for nearly 40 years. He was probably a shrine or two. I have not been able to confirm that, though. I want to emphasize I have not been able to confirm that, but there were a lot of shriners in the L.A. area, and Toberman was known to be involved with a lot of these different clubs, but he was an extremely prominent Freemason. And he was surely the man who built the Masonic Temple in Hollywood. There is no question of this. There is no question that this is the man that Gale is referring to. And if Charles E. Toberman would sponsor a right-wing terrorist and propagandist like William Potter Gale or Gerald L. K. Smith, another fanatical Christian identity adherent, is George Hodel much of a stretch? And if Hodel was being used by an intelligence service to infiltrate left-wing groups, 
makes possible links to Toberman all the more plausible. Remember, Intel also had links to Chinese nationalists, i.e. the old China lobby. These were big backers of a person like General Douglas MacArthur, as we went into extensively in the World Anti-Communist League series here on the farm and a lot of this other stuff. So this is that whole milieu there, okay? Toberman certainly appears to have been a part of that, and Hodel also had these ties to nationalist China, which again further leads me to believe that Toberman knew Hodel and may well have been a sponsor. All right, so I, I think that's enough of my ranting for one day. Um, it's time for me to pass the mic, guys. Uh, hopefully I have not bored you all to death. So we come to our next film up for consideration, the 1988 film Society. This is one of the most interesting horror films ever made during that decade, which is saying something. There were a lot of great movies made during the 1980s in the horror genre. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's get going. All right, so we'll start off with the film's co-writer, a Mr. Zeff Daniel, who wrote this film using the <clears throat> name Woody Heath. This guy has a really interesting story. Sam, would you like to handle this one for me, sir? Um, sure, but let me um, start with the, the caveat that um, anyone listening who hasn't seen the movie Society should... Um, press pause right now and and go see it first um because i think i already of... tipped the hand of the spoilers with my assessment of the dog and movie and book but yeah 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 definitely because this is a spoiler heavy episode if you haven't figured out by now it really is and um i'm i just i'm i really love this movie and uh anyone listening should definitely see it um because yeah when i discovered more about the backstory of the writer it just made it all the more interesting. So um, he's credited as, as Woody Keith um, for the movie Society, but he later changed his name to Zeph E. Daniel. Um, but he co-wrote it with this guy, Rick Fry, who worked with him on a couple other movies. One was Bride of the Reanimator and the other one was Dementia. Um, but so a little bit about Woody Keith's background. He was raised, so he claims, um, so take this all with a grain of salt. I have no evidence here. This is all his story um, as he tells it. Um, but he claims he was raised in a, an elite, um, ultra-rich Beverly Hills family and that he was a victim of satanic ritual abuse. Um, there was an interview he did with Art Bell on Coast to Coast in 2004, uh, where he goes into it in more detail than I've, I've heard him in other interviews. And, uh, I'll try to summarize it. I think when he was around 17, um, he was given a near fatal dose of phenobarbital and, um, it put him in a coma. And when he woke up, he was at this psychiatric facility he claims in Denver, and was kept there for um, about seven years. Do you know like what the uh, the time frame of this would have been, by the way? So in 2004, he said he was 50. Um, so meaning he was born in 1954. Um, that would put him put around the year 1969 is when he had his coma. Okay. And then was transferred to this um, 
unnamed, undisclosed psychiatric um, facility is how he described it. But it's just um, interesting because obviously, I mean, I know you know this, but I mean, for those of you unfamiliar, Boyd Rice later set up what is Tiki Bar <laughs> in um, Denver area. Michael Aquino and some of these guys were out there, Tracy Twyman. So Denver kind of later had the legacy with that whole milieu afterwards. So it's interesting that Zeph was there during the like late 60s, early 70s. Yes. Um and so basically there's the, the Aurora. Sorry, I don't mean to keep cutting all Sam, but it just occurred to me too. There was also the whole Aurora shooting thing, which was closely linked to um the Batman film and the Joker with James Earl Holmes. So um yeah, mm -hmm. another weird sync to all this. Yeah, and 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 so during these six to seven years, he claims to have undergone all kind of um mind control experiments. Um he was dosed with um, all number of drugs, and he claims that they were, um, I guess, satanic was, was the word he used. Demonic came up as well. Um, he alluded to the fact that they weren't altogether human. Um, he didn't outright say they were extraterrestrials. Um, he just said they were demonic entities who were uh, more or less possessed, who were in the business of harvesting souls, as he called it. And he escaped, um, you know, after seven years. But when he escaped, basically the movie society, I think, um, is, is a more or less literal reflection of his reality at this time because he, he claims that everyone around him, uh, all the people in his life were assigned to him. He was living in a kind of Truman Show uh, reality where essentially everyone he interacted with was in some way his handler. <laughs> uh, it is an extremely paranoid uh, vision of reality. And um, the movie Society, the script of Society, is him kind of writing this down, um, trying to make sense of it. Um that's all I know about Woody Keith prior to writing the script for Society. As far as I know, he had no um, screenplays before this, no novels, nothing. Like this is the first time he appears in the history books. Um, and his claims of satanic ritual abuse um, are, are essentially what account for this time. His family was very much involved. I, and I think the movie society being set in Beverly Hills, um, dealing with a kind of elite class, rich class, um, who are also um, closet or, or not so in the closet, um, Satanists um, or handlers, you name it, um, you know, I think reflects that. So yeah, that, that's a little bit of a background on Woody Keith for you. Clay, do you have anything you'd like to add about, um, Mr. Daniel slash uh, Mr. Keith. Yeah, I mean, I think Sam covered most of it. Um, you know, one thing that was really interesting that he said in his Art Bell interview was that he said that human souls were essentially being uh, brokered to some kind of other entities. He said extraterrestrials. He, he used the word intergalactic. And he, he recounts seeing a box that they were put in. And the fact that he was in some kind of facility 
you know, that was psychiatric, I guess, in nature, but I think it was probably more military, military based. It just makes me wonder about transhumanism. And if by box, he was referring to some kind of early, you know, military decades ahead technology that was able to kind of store DNA or store, um, for lack of a better term, a life force. And I, I thought that was really interesting, but it actually it, it kind of reminds me too that description of um season three of Twin Peaks. I mean, you remember how they had that kind of eccentric um mm-hmm. out later it's, oh, yeah. it's the evil Cooper, but yeah, they they have that facility set up in Las Vegas, I think, where they have that <laughs> mysterious box there that they're just kind of like waiting for something to show up into. That is yeah, good point. I also thought of um Wilhelm Reich's Oregon accumulator. Wasn't that essentially like a box? Um, where he, he claimed to yeah, be able yeah, to do harvest this energy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting and, and uh, just um all you know, I think the the Wilhelm Reich thing could could maybe be more clo- uh, more closely related to what that box was, but I also think it's interesting that you know, in light of you know what we found out about, we, we still don't know what's on the ranch, but the fact that Jeffrey Epstein had that ranch in New Mexico, and uh, you know, a lot of people in our circles think that that was used for human experimentation. And it just makes you wonder what, you know, some of these facilities, like, you know, where they're located and, you know, they're quasi-military and military at the same time. And I think the best example we have of someone who would run that operation is someone like a Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, I mean, it's very... I can't get into too much of this. We've got to save something for the subscribers. But I mean, yeah, there's definitely the fact that a guy like George Adele, a medical doctor, I mean, turned up in this. Exactly. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And exactly. yeah, I mean, the stuff with Epstein is, you know, I've always I've been saying this, you know, really since the story started to break massively. I mean, a couple of years ago. But I think the big thing that is always downplayed that everybody should be paying attention to is all the funding that he gave for scientific research. I mean, this is the main thing that Jeffrey Epstein was doing the last two decades of his life. I mean, it was funding scientific research, and a lot of it was into this really arcane, transhumanistic kind of fringe the things that you know would be difficult to get funding for from mainstream sources mm-hmm. so again this is just why you know when you look at this whole milieu that we're describing here with um you know these exclusive gentlemen club like the tuna club the bohemian club the connections they have to certain universities like stanford and caltech i mean these are really where you know, we developed the whole concept of genetics and things like that at uh, Stanford is still at the forefront of neuroscience and a lot of other things. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the, you, it's it's not difficult to see a certain pattern repeating itself here with a guy like Adele and Epstein. It's true. I, I just have to add the film society was such a brilliant um satire of of this kind of um elitist uh sicko worldview you know i I think in the movie they they there's a line like um it's just a matter of good good genetics 
or something like that. Like you're only part of this club, you know, if you're literally of the blood of this club, like there's a very overt reference references to eugenics and um, yeah, blood being a part of it, you know, and DNA. And I I think the ending scene, the shunting um, really speaks to that. And we'll get into that later. I'll I'll save that. (laughs) Yeah, no, but this is, um, especially since, you know, again, you know, it bears repeating, but California was just ground zero, too, for the eugenics movement, and really still is for that matter. But uh, so, again, that's another very relevant point, all of this. Um, But anyway, before we get too much into the movie, there's one other guy behind the camera we needed to say a few words about. That's the director, Brian Yuzna? Yuzna, yeah. Yuzna, Yuzna, okay. So, Sam, what do you got on this guy? Uh, Well, he's really interesting. And, um, you know, Society was the first movie he directed um, before he was involved as a producer interestingly of two uh hp lovecraft adaptations one was reanimator um which was more or less a kind of frankenstein story and the other one was uh from beyond and he worked with this guy Stuart gordon on both of those films who has an interesting background himself i'll just um speak a little bit about him um in the 60s and 70s he was uh, Stuart gordon was very involved in experimental theater um and uh some of it was very extreme almost kind of uh arto uh, theater of horror type stuff um at the university of wisconsin he did this play called the game show that was um, intended to be an attack on apathy Gordon and wisconsin oh, y- yeah yeah university. was it madison that he went yep to? Yeah, it was Madison. <laughs> That's very interesting. Very, very interesting. All right. Sorry. But, uh, no, I just, okay. I got to point out, though, this is also like <laughs> August Derleth is like right there at Sox City. Uh, mm-hmm. This was the publisher. He was the owner of Arkham uh, Publishing, which is really what kept the torch alive for Lovecraft for a lot of years. Mm. Gordon was, in my opinion, Gordon and Yunza were really the guys who are responsible arguably i think more than anybody else in popular well i mean i suppose you could maybe throw in you know lavenda obviously with the simon necronomicon but i mean i really feel though like it was reanimators that really captured the imagination in terms of lovecraft uh for like generation x and a lot of the younger generations um and then later obviously from from beyond and they did actually a quite an excellent lovecraft adaptation in 2004 uh dagon too so Mm -hmm. but yeah i i really don't think there would be the anywhere near the kind of cult of lovecraft today if it wasn't for gordon and yunza i mean they were huge in all of this yeah, yeah, I really agree. I and that was something that was really surprising to me. I, I have yet to see Reanimator and From Beyond. I'm very excited to though. Um, but uh, yeah, they also did. Yuzna <laughs> did an adaptation of Necronomicon as well. Yeah, no, I remember that. It was like an anthology, and mm-hmm. I, I'm not mistaken. I think that one of the directors and it went on to do the Brotherhood of the Wolf, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. Um, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. And that's actually got a lot of stuff in it about secret societies and what have you, too. Also sort of playing a bit into the werewolf mythos and whatnot. So, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting crew here. <laughs> yeah, so just a little bit more about Gordon and his background in this experimental theater. So at the at the University of Wisconsin, he did this play called The Game Show. And in it, he locked the audience in the theater, humiliated, beat, and raped them. Um, and in parentheses, it says audience, audience plants were used for that part. Um, but his performances uh, were, you know, clearly very shocking. I think he was banned from from doing performances there again. <laughs> so Gordon, you know, that's his background. And then he, Yuzna's first films are working with Gordon on two Lovecraft adaptations, which I found to be just a really interesting um, start for Yuzna in the film industry. But so society originally... Um, was Yusna was working on this script with um, Dan O'Bannon, um, who wrote Alien. And um, the project was called The Men. And uh, the plot was, you know, this young woman discovers that all the men in the area are not what they appear to be. And uh, they're, they're actually, as it turns out, aliens from another planet. And Yusna really liked this because it was just an incredibly paranoid vision you know, from this young woman's standpoint of just realizing that all the men on planet Earth are aliens. Um, and as soon as the the script got funding, strangely, Dan O'Bannon dropped out. And that kind of fell apart. And then shortly thereafter, Yuzna received this script by Woody Keith called Society. And it had a, a similarly um, paranoid vision, but if not more so, I would say definitely more so. And that really appealed to, to Yuzna at the time. He was really wanting this to be the focus. And he really liked the kind of social commentary that, that society had, especially the late 80s. You have Reagan, you have, you know, um, just this whole time of, um, yeah, of, of Reagan, moral majority and you name it. But uh, yeah, so he started developing society with Woody Keith. There were a couple key changes that Yuzna made um, that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, in the script, Woody Keith had the grand finale being a blood sacrifice done by these elites. And Yuzna thought that was a little too cheap. And Yuzna at the time was really into special effects. And he thought you couldn't really do anything, you know, uh, too interesting or compelling with just a blood sacrifice. And so he changed it um, to this idea called the shunting, which, again, I'll pause on because I think we're going to touch on it later. So I'll leave it at that. To go back to Stuart Gordon, because I had a few other interesting things about this that just occurred to me. So August Derleth, um, who was right there in Sox City, um, Wisconsin, he was, I, I don't know actually if he was a full-blown member of uh, the Fortean Society, but he had worked with different members of it uh, over the years, and he had uh, helped uh, put together an anthology for the original Fortean Society as well, so there was certainly a connection there. Um, he didn't die until 71, so he could definitely have known um, Gordon uh, which is very interesting. And also, too, um, there's the whole connection with the Wright family. Uh, this is very near Spring Green, Wisconsin, about an hour and a half. Um, August Derleth and Frank Lloyd Wright didn't know one another. I don't know how good of friends they were, per se, uh, but they certainly knew each other in the social circles in Madison. And um, 
uh, Derleth had included Wright as a character in several of his historical novels that he had written too. Uh, Wright had died by 59, so obviously Gordon wouldn't have known him, but I mean, he would have been right there in that whole area with uh, Wright's family and whatnot. So uh, that's, that's all very um, fascinating, again, especially in light of just how many references there seem to be to um, Wright's architecture in a lot of these uh, movies that we've been discussing. <laughs> uh, Welcome back to Wisconsin yeah 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 <laughs> um and yes ironically clay and i will probably be in wisconsin when this episode drops too so even more so. <laughs> that'll be awesome um uh clay do you got anything to add about yuzna or uh gordon here before we move on man no no i think sam did a wonderful job uh covering both thank you he did he did all right, well then, let's talk some Screaming Mad George and the use of surrealism in the film. Love Screaming Mad George, one of my favorite makeup artists. I was definitely one of those kids with a subscription to Fangoria, so yes, I know the names of some of the FX men besides Stuart uh, Winston, so Stan Winston. Uh, all right, Sam, do you want to start us off with uh, Mr. Mad George? Sure. Um, so, yeah, his his name comes from uh, is modeled after Screamin' Jay Hawkins, who famously wrote I Put a Spell on You. Uh, Screaming Mad George is Japanese, uh, I believe. And his his uh, real name is Joji Tani. Um, but, yeah, he's a real legend um, in the horror body horror genre. Uh I didn't realize he was involved with this, but I just watched Big Trouble in Little China last night. And I think that was his first film that he was involved with. That has incredible um, special effects and makeup. Yeah, I believe it was too. Um, yeah, that's great too. I love Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, perfect mixture of camp and schlock and, and also just really good John Carpenter movie. Um, but yeah, so I mean, he was involved with so much Predator, the the original Predator, um, Nightmare on Elm Street three and four. Um, he was also involved with Bride of the Re Reanimator. So he's worked with Yuzna a couple times, but I believe Society was the first time they were together. Um, and I think, if I remember right, the reason he brought him in is because Yuzna um, discovered Screaming Man George had an interest in surrealism. And I didn't know about the Black Dahlia connections to surrealism. So this is another interesting tie-in. Um, but that's that's really what kind of um, takes this film up a notch, in my opinion. Um, both Yuzna and Screaming Mad George, um, you know, shared a, a big interest in surrealism, especially Dali, Man Ray, and Goya. And I think the, the ending scene, the shunting, the reason it was changed from a blood sacrifice to this idea of the shunting was that it was just more surreal. I mean, it's incredibly um, repulsive, uh, disturbing, and I, I think ultimately surrealist. Like I, no one had ever really done body horror this way. It, it is an incredibly visionary scene. It's unforgettable if you watch it. I just, I could not take my eyes off it even though i wanted to you, you know it, it it's um may, maybe I'll, we'll get to it uh, we'll finally describe the ending scene which is called the shunting 
the term shunting is amazing. I, I love it. I think Yuzna came up with that. Um, and to describe it a little bit, a shunt is a hollow tube surgically placed in the brain or occasionally the spine to help drain cerebrospinal fluid and redirect it to another location in the body where it can be reabsorbed. This definition kind of perfectly um, gives you a visual for the, the ending scene. Imagine a mass of, of naked bodies all just becoming one another and, and melding into each other and melting and just, um, yeah, meshing together in the most grotesque and, and horrifying ways. And this was, was uh, Yuzna in Screaming Mad George. That was their surrealist collaboration. This was their surrealist vision. And they were very overt about surrealism being the big influence with this movie. Um, I think specifically they were inspired by um, a Dali painting called Soft Construction with Boiled Beans. And if you look at it, it's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting as well. I mean, it's just everything melting into, into one and you can't tell what's what. And that's exactly what the ending scene is. And I think there were a lot of meanings for that. I think it actually took the script. To, I mean, it, it took Woody Keith's idea of this elitist blood sacrifice and made it even more horrific in my mind um, because it just kind of showed how... Um, I mean, there's lots of references to incest in the movie about the, these elitist circles being incestuous, both figuratively and literally. And I think this ending scene is is a very um, perfect visual representation of that kind of um, that kind of circle just um, while well, circle jerking. I mean, just literally becoming each other, morphing with each other. Um, and, and that is literally their definition of society um, is that like, you, you know, you will not get anywhere unless you kind of jump in the cannibal orgy um, that they're having there. <laughs> but I just I kind of appreciated um, that it was a, a shared interest in surrealism that created this. I, I think it was really it's it's something that only kind of madmen could come up with and. Um, yeah, Screaming Mad George was the perfect person to put it together. I, I read about the scene and how kind of um, traumatizing it was for the main guy, Billy Warlock, to be a part of. Apparently, the, the shooting of the scene lasted 17 hours, and it was just a full day of constant naked bodies in this. Um, it was some kind of um, uh, substance that was used in a lot of those old 80s movies. I can't remember the name of it, but it. I think it involved latex. I think it involved um, plastic and and just probably all kinds of terrible chemicals. But it was this like film, this disgusting orangish red film that all the bodies were covered in. And it made it look like all the bodies were one, almost like the blob comes to mind um, as another movie that may have had something similar. But um yeah, it was a 17-hour shoot, and, and the, the main actor hated it. And you can really see that in the movie because he's the one being sacrificed uh, or shunted, however you call it. And um, you can tell he really hated it. <laughs> it probably was a disgusting scene to be a part of. But, um, yeah, it's an incredible scene. I mean, it's famous. It's what, it's what gave society its cult status, I think. You know, this 
it lasted what like 15 minutes 20 minutes i thought it was you know going to be quick but they just kept it going there was even like a, a fist fight at the end i mean it's it's just incredible you have to see it if you haven't so that's screaming mad george um his big contribution was that ending scene it's just um unforgettable yeah it, it absolutely is and um to touch on the uh, you know, the uh, the connections here with surrealism and uh, some of the figures we've been talking about, uh, besides Man Ray, who I mean, Hodel was a big fan of. Uh, he knew him uh, personally, and I believe he actually owned several original works by Man Ray as well, which uh, he later donated, I think, shortly before his death. Uh, so that was a very close connection, and also with John Houston as well, too. Which Houston also personally knew Man Ray. Um, and Hadell was also a big fan of Dolly, uh, as are uh, as is Jack Nicholson, and as was Robert Evans. In fact, both mm. of them owned uh, Dolly paintings. Uh, and it's also interesting to note that besides uh, George Hadell, um, been other serial killers connected to Dolly's war, at least well, potentially one other serial killer. It might be more than one, but. Um, this is an interesting one. Um, it has to do with the town of, uh, what would this be? Perbanon, uh, 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 I think. It's a P-E-R-P-I-G-N-A-N. Uh, so this is a uh, town right at the border of Spain and France in the uh, Catalonian region of uh, Spain. Which is interesting in terms of the uh, Tuna Club of Avalon being based out of uh, Avalon being based out of the Santa Catalina Islands uh, off the coast of LA. This is uh, or off, this is uh, along the Pyrenees, actually, the border, historic border of Spain and France. This whole area is awash with uh, metaphysical significance uh, on the French side of the border. It's deep in, you know, Cather territory. This is where René's Le Chateau is. It's very big, like in the Grail mythos and what have you. On the other side, on the Spanish side, it's Basque country. You've got the Catalina region, uh, uh, Galactica or something like that. I mean, there's just a lot of areas here that, um, for, you know, centuries really have been closely connected with a lot of mystical experiences the grail myths and a lot of grimoires come out of here just all kinds of crazy stuff so anyway dolly ended up in this this town um Perbanon or whatever it's pronounced uh on august 27th 1965 at four and uh, i believe specifically at 4 21 p.m he declared it to be the center of the universe um regardless of whether it is or not uh four women were murdered there over the course of the next two or three decades in grisly fashion that seemed to suggest some of Dolly's artwork so it's interesting that Hodel was potentially not the only serial killer inspired by some of Dolly's work and also this other uh these other killings also uh took place in a region also steeped in a lot of metaphysical significance as well and you have this sort of play on the Catalina thing too so it's another uh strange aspect of all of this so uh 
yeah there's just so much with this and it is very interesting that uh specifically they would look at uh, dolly and man ray because they were uh both yeah uh they've inspired some interesting uh people over the years to put it mildly um clay do you have anything you would like to add on uh scream mad george or surrealism sir um yeah only just to add to that ending scene i think if the ending scene was a mere sacrifice it wouldn't have been the same film um the ending scene is really uh pivotal for many reasons um uh number one i think to me first and foremost is it's a great depiction of a shift um you know however you want to think about what that term means but i do think in a lot of these rituals that that human bodies and limbs are shifted somehow and you know one can conjure up what that might mean but i i mean for the for the um the technology they had for the time and the effects and makeup they have for the time, I think it was one of the better scenes in all of 1980s filmmaking for 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 that kind of surrealist horror. Um, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I can't say enough about it. And, um, uh, you know, Sam, Sam was right. It's like they're part of the same bloodline and they sh- share... It's all. It's implied they share semen and and body parts, and you know it, it just speaks to that uh, that evil elitism um, so well. So I think it was very well done. Um, another thing too, I'll point out as well that I liked a lot about it is that uh, the ending is you know really sort of hinted at. I think throughout uh, the movie, but the uh, you know a lot of the props used there is a lot of surrealistic artwork and sculptures and so forth present in many of the residencies that we see as well so i thought that was another nice touch also and uh it's also again very in keeping with you know how adele and evans and nicholson and some of these other people uh purportedly decorated their interiors also so you know, again, this is another really fascinating aspect of uh, this movie. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just to add as well to the surrealist element, I think they actually commented on Yuzna did. Carissa, is it Carissa or Clarissa's mom? Clarissa. Yeah, yeah Clarissa's mom. You know, was was a an absolute surrealist creation. If you if you see that character and can make any sense of her, please tell me because. What the fuck is going on <laughs> with that character? She eats hair. She looks like Leatherface from Texas, Texas Chainsaw 4, which, um, yeah, your episode with Jimmy was great on that. Look it up. It, it's it's remarkable, the, the, the uh, similarities in appearance. Yeah, yeah, That's- we'll, uh, yeah, we'll get to here in a second. But um, before then, I did want to get into a bit about the... Uh, the albacore and uh, Black Dahlia references in uh, society. Also, Chinatown and the Elroy novel, for that matter. Uh, it seems like both are referenced heavily throughout society. Uh, Clay, do you want to start us off on this one? Uh, yeah, a- absolutely. So um, when I initially watched Society, I, you know, I told my brother about it and, you know, he didn't watch it first and then recluse my brother and i were 
we've been immersed in researching Chinatown and the Black Dahlia and that whole kind of milieu for connections to each other. And I told Clues to watch it and he checked it out. And he told me, he told me something about the film that blew my mind because at the time I had just watched the film and I, I just felt so uneasy about it. There was just, it was such an eerie film. It was like nothing I've ever seen. And Recluse pointed out that when Billy goes to the beach in the most, uh, arguably one of the most pivotal scenes in the movie, I, I think it is the most pivotal scene. I think it's the second most powerful scene. I see that um, only as a, as a very close second is when Billy goes to the beach um, and we'll get into that scene later. Cause I, I don't want to spoil it now, but he's at the beach. He um, is about to be invited. He's trying to get invited to this party. Uh, I'm going to save the other part for later, but you, you see after he leaves the beach, there's a shot of the lifeguard tower and it says the Albacore club. And that's the exact same club that uh, JJ get character goes to, to uh, get directions to meet with Noah Cross's character in, I, I no, he does meet Noah Cross there at the Albacore club. Uh, yeah, it's actually it's the famous scene actually where they uh, they have the the fish with the heads still. Yes, attached. yes. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. So he goes to meet Noah Cross there, and, and the fact that they were used in both movies, uh, there's no way that was a coincidence, and that's certainly referencing the Tuna Club of Avalon in uh, in Catalina Island, which of course is located on the 33rd parallel. And Recluse, I'll let you I'll let you take it from there, man. Yeah, I mean, it is really fascinating because, you know, you specifically, it's actually two shots where they show the Albacore Club, um, and they definitely, I think, linger on it in uh, society. You know, the camera does for a couple of seconds in both cases. In fact, it's when they first get to the beach, it's the first time you see the Albacore Club logo on the lifeguard tower. And I mean, the camera kind of makes a point of lingering at it. And again, that you see it again in that uh, really pivotal scene that Clay is alluding to, which makes me think that this was definitely an intentional choice uh, made by Yonza to feature it there prominently. And again, especially since it's such a big part of uh, Chinatown, I mean, obviously we got into that a lot in the first installment, but I mean, you know, besides the, uh, you know, the fact that they, uh, that's where uh, Nicholson's character first meets the Noah Cross slash John Houston figure, uh, it's also where... Uh, later, I mean, obviously, it's a big part of the nursing home, too, where um, the J.J. Giddy's character finds out that a lot of the landowners in the valley are, and as we've already talked about, I mean, obviously, real estate plays a big part in this whole milieu as well. Uh, the you know, nursing home, I mean, it's all, it's very similar, I think, in a lot of ways to the Satanist that Roman Polanski depicts in Rosemary's Baby. It's... Uh, almost kind of the ultimate banality of evil, if you will. You know, they've uh, owned this nursing home where they've got the old women making their, uh, you know, their flag, which looks like kind of a combination of the Jolly Rogers and like the skull and bone thing and what have you. You know, we've already talked about the Huntington family and the historical linkings to that and whatnot. So I think that this it's unavoidable um and then another thing too obviously beverly hills is a big part of society and robert evans his um woodlands estate 
which plays such a big part in the cartoon Kid Notorious, and it was you know quite legendary within uh, Tinsel Town. I got into that a lot in the last installment as well. It's located right there in Beverly Hills. Uh, so again, I, I definitely think that this was uh, beyond question of absolute reference to Chinatown and most likely the Tuna Club of Avalon as well. It seems like that they were very much aware of this particular history. And um, in terms of uh, the Dahlia, uh, you know, one of the big things that I think uh, that really jumped out to me the first time I saw it was uh, when the shunting starts and uh, the therapist who's sort of the main villain, Dr. Cleveland, again, it's also interesting, the main villain is Doctor, and he starts to transform, he has a very obvious Glasgow smile on his face, very Joker-esque. Which again, given all the stuff that we've discussed, I think is unavoidably a reference uh, to George Adele and the crime. Obviously, uh, you know this is we've already talked a lot about like the uh, the use of surrealism throughout, and the fact that they're specifically featuring artists that both Adele and John Houston, for that matter, were big fans of. In the case of Man Ray, they personally knew him. They were active within the L.A. surrealist scene during the 1940s. Uh, so there's all of that kind of a play. And then it's kind of bizarre, too. The James Elroy novel, uh, Black uh, Dahlia, came out in 87. Uh, Society was filmed in 88. And there's kind of the overlap with the, some of the names, too, bizarrely. Of course, Blanchard... Uh, is uh, a pivotal uh, friend to Billy in society. He gives him some crucial information. Blanch Blanchard, as I had talked about before, was the name of the Aaron Eckhart character taken from the uh, the Elroy novel of one of the two cops. Uh, so that's fascinating. And Blanchard was also the uh, last name of uh, N.M. Blanchard, who was um, one of the founders of... Um, Oh, shoot, I can't remember the name of it, but it was for many years the big citrus company in the L.A. area around Pasadena, I think. Uh, so I think that might have been like partly what the reference to that was with Blanchard. Uh, and then uh, the other one, Bucky, uh, is the name of the other cop from the Elroy novel. I mean, the main name of the uh, first name of the... Well, Bucky's not... Uh, uh, his actual name in the Elroy novel or the later the De Palma film, but that's what everybody calls him. Uh, obviously, the the uh, first name of the main character in society is Billy, so there's kind of a similarity with that, too. I, I don't know if this was, like, intentional or not, but um, it is rather strange that there seems to be a certain amount of uh, play on some of the stuff with um, the James Elroy novel and some of the names there, too, along with the... The Glasgow Smile, which is such a big plot point in uh, both the Elroy and De Palma films. So, you know, again, just it's either an incredible synchronicity, especially with both of these uh, pictures coming out in the same year. And I suppose, I mean, it can't be totally discounted that Elroy and um, Zeph might have been just simply researching or looking into the same milieu as well. 
as I had said at the onset, there have been some indications over the year that Elroy thought the same figure or figures behind the Dahlia murder were also involved in the murder of his own mother. So, uh, like Zeph, I mean, he had kind of a personal stake in this as well. So, mm -hmm. it might even be a little bit of insider baseball. I mean, who knows? But um, it's it's very interesting to put it mildly. Well, the uh, there's all. There's also another interesting thing that's like kind of related to the Tuna, uh, Tuna Club of Avalon or the Albuquerque Club, and that's in the scene where we first see the slugs. And yeah. um, I'll, we'll get into the slugs in a second because they're very important. But his father, uh, Billy's father, is wearing a shirt that says the Royal Henley Yacht Club. And I did a Google search on this, and it shows the Royal Henley Regatta. And it's a very famous yacht race in uh, in London or in the UK. And it's on the Thames River, which, of course, is a site just absolutely steeped in occultism, Celtic, Celtic occultism, and Druidic occultism. So I found that very interesting as well. And I also thought that that was a nod to kind of maybe their brethren over in the UK. Um, and I certainly don't think it was by accident either. Yeah. Oh, and then another, uh, uh, the death of Petrie and society. I mean, there's also sort of shades of uh, uh, Hollis Mulray's death in Chinatown. I mean, both bodies, I think, turn up like in canyons as well. So. Mm -hmm. Mm. that connection is just oh and then also to the last name of um billy's family in society it's whitney w-h-i-t-n-e-y whereas previously i talked about how um probably one of the major inspirations for the emmett's sprague slash lynn scott character in uh the black uh dahlia movie and uh novel was uh probably h.g whitley w-h-i-t-l-e-y so mm -hmm. slight variation on the same name too so that's you know another one it just again it seems like certainly at a minimum zelf and uh, elroy were looking at a lot of the same figures uh or probably as well when they were uh, putting together you know this uh, novel and their script respectively it just seems like it's too much of a coincidence uh to be entirely a coincidence and also, um, don't forget the incest. Yeah, I mean, that to me is a clear reference to Chinatown and Noah and, Cross and the Black Dahlia uh, movie right. film. And yeah, incest is also like a major part of all of this. So yeah, you know, it's another great overlap. The long, I, the only thing society's missing is like a reference to the Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming that was probably only though because like they couldn't afford to get permits to shoot at a Wright house. I That's I would bet money true. that they really wanted to though. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! All right, all right. So, uh, uh, how about some of the numerology in the film? I uh, Clay, you want to start us off with this one, sir? Yeah, so this is really interesting. I, I think we'll start like in the beginning scene here. I'm going through my notes. Um, so Billy's friend, Billy has this really interesting friend, Milo, who we'll get into. And it's my theory, and I think if I speak for everyone, I think it's all of our theory that Milo is essentially his handler. He's Billy's handler the whole way through. 
Um, he arrives at places he should not know to be at. Um, he does things that a friend would not do to somebody in the state. Uh, and he's just, he's a really eerie character. You never get the fact that he's a friend. And even at the ending scene, there's a nod to the audience that Milo's still in on it. And I'll get into that later. But so when Milo arrives, you see they're both on the basketball team. You see Billy's jersey, which is number 45, and Milo's jersey, which is number 22. And there's a couple interesting things about that. Number one is the number 22, which is a reference to, I think, many. it's many things, and, and Recluse has a reference that he'll get into, but uh, I think it's a reference, to, I think it's a multifaceted reference. The one I want to focus on is the reference to JFK. Um, JFK was killed on November 22nd, 1963. Um, the Haitian dictator, Papa Doc Duvalier, swears that even though I don't think that it was because of him, but he swears that, uh, but I do think the ma- the numerology manifested through him, and he swears that because of him, Kennedy died. He's apparently stabbed a voodoo doll of JFK 2,222 times, which sounds like really, I, I don't know what was left of the voodoo doll, um, on uh, November 22nd and I think he, he drove around in a license plate with the number 22 on his presidential vehicle as well so that was interesting uh, the numbers if you subtract the jersey numbers 45 and 22 you get the ultra famous occult number of 23 and what what is really interesting about those numbers I kind of almost thought they were throwaway numbers at first and they were just kind of there out of happenstance but Later in the movie, when so uh, recluse, do you mind if I uh, do you want me to get into the storyline about the tape now? Or are we waiting for that? Oh no, you can go ahead and get into it now, sir. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so what happens to Billy is that he he uh, he uh, he receives a tape. Then this is at that pivotal scene, uh, what I call the second most pivotal scene. He receives a tape from his sister's ex-boyfriend named Blanchard, uh, who we think is probably inspired by the character Lee Blanchard from Elroy's novel. And Blanchard gives him a tape of his sister and his mother and father talking about an orgy at her coming out party. And it's the eeriest scene, one of the eeriest scenes I've ever seen because it's one of the rare examples in film where you see what is rumored to be happening in these uh, Illuminati, Druidic, Mithraic, uh, what most people call satanic rituals, uh, where they, they they prostitute out their own family members, their own, their own sons and daughters. And you see that here in a way that you do not see, or you hear it, but you hear this recording of the Billy's sister Wendy talking to her mother and father about going to a sex orgy party, which is essentially her coming out party, and asking questions about it, like who should she have sex with first, and all this stuff. It's very, very disturbing. And that's when you see that's at the scene we see the Albacore Club, which makes that scene even more powerful. So Billy gets the tape of that from Blanchard. He goes, the first person he takes it to is Dr. Cleveland, his psychiatrist. And what's interesting is when he arrives at Dr. Cleveland's house, there's a statue next to him. 
and I think I can't prove it, but I think it's a statue of the the Mesopotamian god Oanes, the fish god. I originally thought it was a ram's horn, but it, it's hard to tell. But I do think it is Oanes. He drops it off. Doctor Cleveland takes it. Billy arrives the next day, and Doctor Cleveland plays the tape and it's a completely this seems really eerie too it's like give me a little bit chills talking about it he plays a tape of the recording and it's it's as if they did it in the sound stage it's a completely fake tape where billy and his mom and the daughter wendy are talking about or not not billy but wendy and billy's parents are talking about going to coming out parties if it's a legitimate coming out party just a societal ball and Billy starts freaking out and he goes, I got to call Blanchard. So he dials the phone and the numbers he dials are, um, let me go to the, it's four, five, two, two, four, one, nine. So you see their Jersey numbers in there. And then I have yet to crack the four, one, nine part, but I think the number as a whole means something too. And it, it's just, it, it, <laughs> it further adds to the fact that there's a much deeper layer to this film. Um, you know, of course, it suffers from the 80s kitsch environment that it's in, but it, there's a deeper message they're trying to communicate here about these families and how they operate. And I think that number uh, definitely ties into that. Also, the other number that was really important... <laughs> Uh, as well as the the number to their house is 391. And as Recluse pointed out earlier, uh, Elizabeth Short was killed on the corner of Coliseum Street and 39th Street. And we certainly don't think that's a coincidence at all. Um, and that is, I think, the end of my part of the numerology. I'll let Recluse get into kind of what he thinks about 22 and uh and take it from there elizabeth short uh, was 22 years old when she was murdered um obviously you know there's the connection with the terror there are 22 trumps in it and depending upon the system you use the full card can potentially be seen as the 22nd uh, trump uh, which is interesting as well. And also, though, uh, when you kind of tie it into the tree of life, uh, there are 22 uh, steps on the tree or uh, paths on the tree of life. So there's also that reference as well. Just in general, I mean, it's, you know, just steeped in a lot of mysticism uh, and so forth. But again, I mean, as it relates uh, to the possibility of, um, for lack of a better term, you know, I mean, uh, possessed or mind controlled or whatever individuals i mean it's certainly interesting in light of some of the things that george adele i mean this is a topic i get into more on the subscriber shows but um uh, the the things that we tend to associate with like mk ultra and what have you um you know they were known to certain orders and so forth so here's something interesting i guess a little tip of the or hint that i'll give you guys here about like what prevailed in the whole hollywood area and this deals with a uh, group called uh rotona i believe k-r-o-t-o-n-a 
this was a kind of hybrid theosophical slash Rosicrucian group that was really prominent uh, in the Hollywood area in um, the early 20th century. Uh, there's quite an eccentric woman uh, who uh, headed it. I can't recall her name off the top of my head right now, but um, I've already alluded a bit to this uh, milieu earlier. You see, um, this was the network that established the Hollywood Bowl. It's not really known, but originally it was theosophists who had gone to set this up and they wanted an area to put on their ritual dramas at. Uh, eventually, though, it was decided to make it into a more conventional amphitheater. As I had noted before, it was Mr. Ch uh, Charles E. Toberman who oversaw the creation of the Hollywood Bowl. And it was Mr. Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's son, who did some of the most iconic architecture. So <clears throat> this is this whole milieu, and this is right around the time that they would have been starting the work on the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, that Wright uh, later took up. Uh, but anyway, to quote again from the wonderful book, Southern California and Island of the Land by Carrie McWilliams, uh, page 255. By 1920, Hollywood had begun to encroach upon Cretonia, and Dr. Warrington decided to lead the faithful to the Ogea Valley, O-J-A-I, a section of Southern California thoroughly impregnated with occult and psychic influences. It is the home of Edgar Holloway, the man from Lemuria who claims to have flown to Ogia some years ago in a great flying fish. The real genesis of Ogia as an occult center, however, may be traced to the publications in the early 20s of a magazine article by Dr. Kidrilika H.R.D. D-L-I-C-K-A, uh, predicting the rise of a, quote, new sixth sub-race. It seems that psychological tests given in California schools had revealed the existence of a surprising number of child prodigies. Ergo, California was the home of the new subrace. Once this revelation was made, writes the biographer of Annie Vincent, theosophists all over the world turned their eyes towards California as the Atlantis of the Western Sea. Now, there's a lot uh, of very interesting implications to that that I'll... Uh, be getting into in the uh, subscribers episodes so yeah anyway uh let us see here okay so uh let's get into some of the weird stuff uh in regards to the milo character i mean it seems like this movie there are allusions to gang stalking which you know would have made this one of the first films to actually even kind of deal with this type of thing clay what says you on this topic <clears throat> Um, yes, uh, this is a very important topic in the film, and it took me a, a couple watchings to really know, get this, but the character of Milo just really doesn't add up. And one thing that was really important that I forgot to mention is the reason why I got to the JFK assassination number um, was because when we first meet Milo and him and Billy are essentially playing basketball outside of his house on Billy's hoop. And I'm going to go to the, my notes here. Um, Billy and they're, they're playing basketball. And then uh, 
Blanchard comes over and Milo says to Billy at 525 in, Billy, you're Mr. Perfect. You'll probably end up assassinating the president one day. And when I heard that line, I had missed it a couple times before in my washings, my jaw dropped. He's wearing the number 22. He's saying, you're Mr. Perfect. You'll probably end up assassinating the president one day. And he's essentially Billy's handler. So you have this message right up front at the top of the film that Billy is kind of an, that Billy is an MK ultra subject and MK ultra, perhaps not in the military sense, but in the sense of these occult uh, people, you know, uh, one of the processes obviously is to break the human spirit through uh, rape and, and murder and torturous uh, actions to fracture the personality so that a demon can come in the body. Um, uh, what's his name? Andrew Getty talked a lot about that in his film, The Evil Within, which is a really disturbing film and hard to watch. Um, but uh, but from that sense, and, you know, Recluse has done a lot of work, obviously, in exposing how the military and the occult are almost the same thing at many times when it comes to MKUltra, especially through Michael Aquino. But that's interesting. And what's also interesting is the movie opens with a walking shot into the house and you do see that it's billy because he comes through the door but the walking shot is done in a way that's really creepy it it starts with a steady cam and then it goes into a handheld shot and it's kind of shaky and you get the impression that someone's filming billy the whole time and one of the most important things about this film that I, I want to comment on is that I think that Billy and the audience are meant to be the same people in the film. The pranks that are happening to Billy are also happening to the audience. And there's a line that I will get to that, that really sums that up at the end. But so Milo says that right at the beginning. Um, Milo seems to follow Billy all the time. He is at places where he shouldn't be. And there's a progression of pranks that he does to Billy. And the interesting thing about the pranks is, is that they seem to follow Billy's progression into psychosis. So the first prank, and, and you don't know it's Milo until, until Milo eventually reveals it. So the first prank that Milo starts with, he leaves a Ken doll who is meant to be a representation of Billy as black hair, just like Billy or brown hair, just like Billy with a screw in his head. Like we're, we're screwing with your head. Then midway through the movie, Billy opens his locker and finds a black voodoo head doll, a shrinking voodoo head doll. And what's really interesting is that as the film goes on, Billy seems to fit in his clothes less and less. There's a scene where he's giving a speech in the auditorium toward the end of the film where his clothes are almost falling off his body. Uh, the pants look two sizes too big. And I think it's meant to kind of represent that in the final prank that Milo does, which I think is really, really over the line and, and no friend would do this outside of whatever's happening to Billy. It, 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 he puts a blow up doll of the girl, Clarissa, who seduces him and honestly seems to have him under some kind of spell of mind control. Um, so just to give the audience a little bit of uh, 
uh, uh, overall info. So Billy has a girlfriend named Shauna, this kind of really dumb blonde girl who's meant to be a stereotypical pop culture zombie. And he's with her, but there's, you know, there doesn't seem to be any emotion between them hardly at all. And he goes to this party of this elitist guy, Ted Ferguson, and he's seduced by this this lady, uh, this girl, Clarissa Carlin. And she's really interesting in that you don't really know if she goes to the school. She kind of shows up once and then she disappears. And her mother, like, is her mother is this, like, you don't know if she's a man or she's a woman. She's like this giant kind of zombie figure that's very similar to Leatherface that we talked about. And she ends up sleeping with Billy uh, and. Uh, he breaks up with his girlfriend because of that, but or, or and his girlfriend comes to confront him, and she sees a blow up doll. He, Billy has a blow up doll in his jeep, uh, with his Ken doll inside of her vagina, and it says Clarissa in tape across her chat her top chest, and it's like if that if Milo was a friend, clearly he wouldn't do that because that would want make any girl want to break up with her boyfriend no matter what. And so so it, uh, his girlfriend breaks up with him after that. And then uh, Milo is... So Billy, uh, uh, after... I'm trying to clue the audience in. So what happens to... Uh, Blanchard after he gives Billy the tape showing that um, that his family is involved in all of that incestual Illuminati type activity um, he eventually uh, after Billy uh, receives the rig tape shows it to Dr. Cleveland Dr. Cle- or, or the regular tape Dr. Cleveland plays him the rig tape and uh, Billy calls Blanchard, then he goes to Blanchard's, then he goes to meet with him and finds out that he's dead. So this character, Petri, who is, who looks oddly, who oddly looks like Hollis Mulray too, by the way, recluse. I, I just kind of picked up on that, but um, he is running against Billy for the class president and he comes up to Billy and he says, hey, meet me at Franklin Canyon tonight. I'll tell you all about, I'll tell you all about your family, about, about Blanchard, et cetera, et cetera. So Billy meets him at Franklin Canyon and oddly enough, Milo is following them the whole time. He's watching everything. And what happens is he sees what he thinks is Patrick's death. Patrick slits his throat. And then all of a sudden they, they call the police or he calls the police. He's with Clarissa and he calls the police. <clears throat> the police come. Billy goes back. There's another car there that's not Petri's, has no body in it, and looks like it's been there for years. It's covered in dust. And My- Milo is watching the whole time. The-, the whole time. Keep that in mind. And the next day, Billy's giving his speech, about to give his speech against his rival Petri, who he thinks just died. And Milo yells, hey, where's Petri? Like, in a weird way. Like, in a way, almost as if he's like trying to incite Billy to go crazy. And Billy gives a speech talking about how Petri died. 
he that it's in that scene when you see his clothes kind of over bloated looks like he'd lost a lot of weight his eyes are all crazy and it's in that scene where i was fully alerted to milo's role and so you see that scene happen and then petri appears and it's eerie it's like at that point you realize that it's beyond billy's family being illuminati like the, the there's role players in his life and he's in it he's in the truman show like sam was saying earlier um and he said many people were assigned to him in that art bell interview this is that like this is a representation of that milo's assigned to be his handler patrick's assigned to be his false rival in the president's in the class presidency uh ted ferguson the the resident cool kid is assigned to be his rival clarissa's designed to be his female handler and, and sexual uh hypnotizer uh it's all there and so milo gets even more suspicious when he comes so billy when he realizes everything he goes to his parents house and it, Dr. Cleveland shows up and two medics show up and they shoot him up with what, I, I don't know, like some kind of um, sedative and they take him to the hospital. This is at the end of the, uh, in the movie. And, and Milo uh, shows up to the hospital and then Billy says, I'm going to the house. Fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. I don't care anymore. Or sorry. He goes to Clarissa's house first calls her out then drives to his family's house milo for reasons i still will not understand comes to clarissa's house and picks up his mother my billy gets to his house and this is the the creepiest scene in 80s film history in my mind and you get he gets there and he starts hearing these voices. All of a sudden, you hear a honk. A car comes in. It's his parents. They come in the house. Billy gets up, about ready to confront them on everything, and all of a sudden, a a uh, like a a giant, I guess, dog collar you call it that they would probably use for like riots and stuff that the police would use is put around his neck, and all of a sudden, everyone comes out from behind the shades and uh, seemingly out of nowhere and the occult ritual begins and Milo is outside watching the whole time with Clarissa's mother this is a leather face zombie kind of trans I guess trans character I don't know if she's a man or woman you can't really tell and she's she's pulling his hair he takes he she knocks out a cop he takes the cop uniform and sneaks, and I use the word sneaks in quotes, into the house with Milo's mom. And they're essentially just watching the entire ritual. Unnoticed, it makes zero sense. Nobody seems to know that they're there. And the question is why? And guess who else is there? Clarissa is there. She's in on it. It's revealed that she's in on it. But... She does end up helping him at the end. I guess she feels bad about her deal with the devil or whatever. But then at the end, when they escape, it's revealed that Milo... So, sorry, let me backtrack a second. 
to get into the house, Milo knocked out a cop, and you get the impression that he took on the full uniform of the cop to fool his way in. Well, that's certainly not the case, because at the end, Milo, Billy, and Clarissa run out of the house, and you get the impression that the ritual's far from over. Billy hasn't escaped anything. He's with two of his handlers, and Milo, it's revealed, is not wearing a full police costume. He's wearing a, the coat of the police officer, and he has jeans on. And I think that's a, a definite nod to the audience, like that showing that this guy is totally in on it. I mean, he has been in on it the whole time. He's Billy's handler, and that the ritual is still ongoing. What's important to note at this point that by the time Billy arrives at his house, he was officially labeled dead at the hospital, which is really, really eerie for many reasons. Um, uh, this would require an entire sidebar conversation, but there's all kinds of things about death faking rituals. Um, one of the people named in that was the uh, one of the guys from uh, the Son of Sam killings, uh, who is known as the Wicker King. Um, and then there are rumors that a certain TV presenter's son who was supposed to be missing was actually not missing and he's still alive. I won't get into that here. But it really the ending I is not a happy ending. I, I think it I think it's showing that the rituals continuing in almost even more horrifying way, and that Billy is is not able to escape and he's still with his two handlers. Um and that's uh that's what I have to say about Mr. Milo. Yeah, there's almost shades actually of the end of the third season of Twin Peaks. Uh I definitely agree with Chris Knowles on his interpretation of that last scene where um, <clears throat> Laura Palmer is whispering in Dale Cooper's ear and uh, there's just that look of absolute horror in his face. And I think what she's telling him is that nothing changed. He never left the uh, Black Lodge, basically. And I yeah. kind of think, like, if society had gone on, there eventually would have been a scene like that with Billy and Clarissa. Um, but I, I, I think so. And the more horrifying question is, where what would it, would Milo have just shot him in the back and killed him? You know, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. One, other, <laughs> one other point uh, I wanted to make right quick that's interesting was the name Franklin Canyon. They're actually Franklin Canyon is a real place, actually, in Beverly Hills. It's a very exclusive park. Um. But it's also interesting to note that George Fidel's residency at the time of the Dahlia's killing, um, the one that Lloyd Wright uh, designed, uh, it typically is referred to as the Soden House, uh, but it was also referred to as the Franklin House because it was off of Franklin Street. So kind of another interesting uh, possible illusion. <laughs> so uh, uh sam did you have anything to add about mr milo's character before we move oh and by the way too also clay i mean yeah i think you're totally right with the with milo i mean because the illusions too with like both the cop uniform at the end and also the kind of like quasi air force jacket that he has oh yeah i forgot and, to get into that yeah that's I like kind of the, yeah the beginning too you see him with that air force jacket and the tom cat <laughs> thing on it and what have you um did you want to mention the jacket right quick clay because i think yeah 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 i'm so sorry so yeah uh, that's another really important scene too so 
we'll get into the scene in a second, but Billy is invited to his arch rival, Ted Ferguson, like the kind of bully tough guy who's oddly friend, good, best friends with Petrie. Um, Ted Ferguson has a party and Billy finally gets invited. He goes there. And the eerie thing is, is Milo is not invited, but he shows up after Billy starts dancing with Clarissa Carlin, breaks it up and, and says a really important line actually. And he, he says, have you seen her mother? And what he's implying in that is he's implying that like, this lady cannot afford this girl cannot afford to live in Beverly Hills like us because her mother's clearly like mentally insane. There's no way she's generating that kind of income. There's no way she's competent. And he's implying that Clarissa is playing some kind of role to be able to live in Beverly Hills. And I think she's used to seduce young men for these rituals. And I, I do think she's older than that. I don't think she goes to the high school. Um, but that aside, when Milo arrives, He's wearing a Tomcat sticker, which is representative of the F-14 Tomcat. I originally thought it was a, 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 a it had a Moloch owl on it, but that's not correct. It was F-14 Tomcat, which is, uh, uh, you know, which was part of the main training uh, vehicle for Top Gun at the time, the Naval Flight School. So you almost get the impression that that's like a nod to like naval intelligence or like Milo's maybe part of intelligence or maybe, maybe is like also older than them working for the military, pretending to go to their high school kind of a thing. Um, it's just, it's really weird. I mean, you know, at the end, you know, theoretically he's dressed up like a cop as a disguise. Yes, like yes. But in that scene, it's like a party or something. This kid just shows up like in this freaking military jacket at this exclusive yeah. party with the Beverly uh, it's Hills. Really nobody weird. even mentions it either. That's kind of the other yeah. thing. Like it's, it's very odd. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very odd and just in just, general, Milo's like uh, wardrobe is very uh, it, it's very symbolic throughout the entire movie. One one hundred percent, you know, even him wearing the cop uh, the cop jacket at the end, one one hundred percent. Yeah, the connection with twenty two. I mean, just yeah, the jacket. I mean, the whole nine yards. It's uh, it's definitely fascinating. Yeah. Sam, did you have anything on Mr. Milo? I didn't mean to cut you off there earlier. Oh, no, not at all. I think Clay's right on. Um, and yeah, the movie makes you, you know, I, I think if you don't re-examine it or see it a second time, you might think that, that Milo's on his side. The thing that really struck me was, you know, while Billy is going th through this, um, you know, paranoia, everyone's out to get him and milo knows this because because billy's talking to milo about it milo continues to essentially do voodoo rituals throughout yes. <laughs> you know? yes. like not even subtle voodoo rituals uh, you know voodoo dolls and shrunken heads and um yeah i think um the fact that he did that while billy was was just having this increasing paranoia um definitely makes milo very suspect as a quote-unquote friend another thing i'll mention as well that the, the screenwriter woody keith um has openly talked about gang stalking um interestingly being uh, you know part of his um uh handling you know after after he escaped 
uh, the psychiatric facility, you know, he was um, being gang stalked. He talks about that. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great analysis by Clay and yourself on Milo. He is no friend. <laughs> so, the, Recluse, you mind if I mention something? This is a, an exact line from the movie. Oh, go for it. Um, 5902 in, Billy says, hey, why why the dolls and stuff? After This is after Milo admits it, right? Because after Milo admits to Billy he was the prankster, Milo, I don't know. You just got me angry. And then he has no, he mentioned something about Billy like being too into himself or something, but he, it's not an answer that makes any sense. Like Billy's specifically asking him, hey, why the dolls and stuff? And Milo just says, I don't know. You just got me angry. And then I forgot the other line, but it was so nonsensical that I didn't even include it. Again, like Milo's revealing himself, he he has no he has no rational explanation for why he's doing this stuff. All right, so another one of the strange things about the film is the implication that both Billy and Petrie are being groomed, and Petrie specifically for political office. So, I mean, Clay, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, so Billy is running for class president against Petrie. Uh, Petrie um, does look eerily similar, like a younger Hollis Mulray from Chinatown. He has glasses, blonde hair. He looks like the perfect kind of, he looks like what you'd think a class president would look like. And it's, it's really weird. Um, he is definitely being groomed for politics of some kind. You see him with a Harvard sweatshirt on at the uh, at the Albacore Club. So the other thing that happens at the Albacore Club, other than Billy, um, the beach scene, other than Billy getting that, that horrific tape from Blanchard, is that he sees Ted Ferguson and he his you know Billy's girlfriend Shauna asks uh, Billy to go see if they can get invited to to the party uh, to Ted Ferguson's legendary party which is another storyline so billy goes over there and, and asks and you see petrie and he has a harvard sweatshirt on and you get the impression like he already knows he got in like he doesn't need to apply like he's there his family was probably there as well and at the end there's an interesting scene when the head of the i guess what you call for lack of a better uh term society pardon the pun this guy judge carter he looks at Ted Ferguson originally and says, you know, there's talks of an internship in Washington. And, you know, you understand that this is these people are grooming people from very early ages for roles in Senate and Senate senator seats, congressional seats, even the presidency. Um, I could get into my own thoughts on that, mentioning certain candidates, but I won't because we don't have time. But it, what's interesting is, is that Ted Ferguson ends up dying in the ritual and Petri makes it out alive. And I find that really interesting. And you don't really know how Billy is able to... Billy basically gets in a death match against Ted Ferguson in the ritual. And you don't really know how he wins. And I... I'm thinking that Petri may have left 
something for him because it's weird. Billy, essentially, while while Ted Ferguson is shifting, Billy punches him, essentially up the ass, reaches his hand up through his body, pops his eyes out, and pulls him inside out. And in the previous scene, uh, 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 in the previous part of the ritual, Judge Carter had done that very same thing to Blanchard. But when he did it to Blanchard, he it seemed like he needed his hair to do that. Because he took some of Blanchard's hair and goes, ah, the hair. And then he stuck his hand up his ass and pulled his head down into the the blood skin orgy that you see at the end. So I wonder if Petrie might have left some hair of Ted's or something on the floor for Billy. I can't I can't say that for sure, but you get the impression at the end that Petrie was kind of scheming to make that happen. It's uh, again definitely an interesting circumstance. You can see how you know, the theory like if Petrie does go and become a prominent politician maybe 30 years down the road and you know billy does kill him um this would be the kind of stuff that they'll draw allusions to when they were in school together to explain billy's alone night killer so it's just so fascinating how all that works out all right how about clarissa carlin and her mother they're two of the strangest aspects of this film and that's that's saying something so what have you guys got first in these two? Uh, uh, Sam, do you want to start us off on this one? Um, sure. So, yeah, I think I think Clay's right. I think Clarissa um, is a kind of sexual handler um, who first entices Billy when he's giving his, his speech for class president. Clarissa's in the front row and she's spreading her legs and Billy kind of um, loses his uh, train of thought, you know, <laughs> And and you do get this sense like he's under a literal spell, and um, Clay's right. She does not fit in with the other high schoolers. She is definitely much older. I think that was intentional. Um, you know, she's put there to entice him and, and be a sexual handler. And you know, during um, when Billy, after Ted Ferguson's party, you know, goes to Clarissa's house, which is. Uh, an oddly nice house. Um, it just doesn't make sense given um, Clarissa's mother is uh, more or less, um, I, I don't know, she, she doesn't speak, I believe. I mean, it's a kind of monstrosity. And so it's like, where did this money come from? How did she end up in this kind of house? Anyway, during the sex scene, Clarissa uh, her body morphs in the same way that everyone else in the society's body morphs. Um, so she's definitely in on it. And I, I think you get the sense that maybe Clarissa, um, just through her, her good looks, was able to, to win entrance into the society. And that's where the money came from. That's where the house came from. Uh, how Clarissa's mom fits into that, I, I just still don't know. Um, she's she's the real odd duck here um, and I was just struck by the similar appearance um, to the to Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw 4 which came out much later but um, still I, I there's just something um, inhumanly odd about Clarissa's mom uh, maybe Clay can pick it up, up here 
Yeah. Um, so Clarissa's mom is a real hard thing to explain. And after watching it multiple times, here's what I think. I think that Clarissa's mother, it's one of two things or Clarissa made a deal knowing that her mother and her could not live on their own with these people to be a sexual handler. And that it wasn't just, sorry, sorry. I I think that's what did happen, but I also think it's more than that. I think that Clarissa's mother is, was possibly used as some kind of um, uh, gimp in their sick rituals um she she just seems like she seems to be not just brain dead but almost hypnotized and it's really weird how much she does look like leatherface in a way but a real life version and if you look at leatherface whether it's you know texas chainsaw massacre one or four or whatever I mean, this is a mind-controlled individual that just swings a saw aimlessly. It's not somebody that thinks for themselves. It's it's some kind of serial killer who... Well, there's also is, the family cult aspect, too. With, yeah. You know, the it, saw it, family it, the implications. Exactly. Exist. I mean, all that stuff, too. It, exactly. And so I think that element is at play. I think she was probably used in the rituals. Um, and well, she's don't always, forget the hair. Yes, yes. She's always grabbing at people's hair. And what's really interesting is when Billy first sees her, she gives him a whole, she comes out with a whole lock of hair, not just like as if she ripped in and pulled someone's hair out, but like, a, like as if somebody cut off their lock of hair and almost gave it to her. And I wonder if it's some kind of voodoo thing, because it's weird that after the scene where, Billy goes to Clarissa's house and he sees her mother come out with that giant lock of hair. And then on top of that, as if that's not enough, she coughs up a blonde piece of hair. And it's very small. And you wonder, was that from the ritual with his sister? Was that from the, was that his sister? Was that her, her way of communicating with him about that? And I also think it's weird that the blow-up doll seemed to have real human hair on it. And the human hair didn't look like Clarissa's. It was blonde. And it oddly looked like his sister's style of hair, like kind of frazzled blonde hair. So I think there's something with her and the hair and the rituals that these people do. And because she's in such a zombie state, she's going around just looking for hair all the time because she knows that that's her role in the ritual. And you see Judge Carter at the end pulling some of Blanchard's hair before he sticks his hand up there and reaches into him. It's like the hair of a human gives these people some kind of power over the actual human body itself. And so I think her role as, as Gimp in these rituals was maybe to grab hair or something. Uh, maybe worse. I don't know, but 
I, I, I think there's that element at play as well as just Clar- Clarissa making a deal with these people to be a uh, sex handler for, for the initial, the ritual uh, sacrifices. All right. Well, <clears throat> I'm uh, going to now offer up my own take on this. Um, as for the hair, uh, I definitely think that this is um, a direct reference to uh, Celtic folk magic. Uh, that probably came down from the olden days uh, by way of the historic ballads. Uh, You get a really good sense of this in uh, one of the child ballads, child ballad number six, which is called Willie's Lady. Uh, There's a good website here that goes into an excellent analysis of this called uh, Mainly North Folk, uh, English and Scottish Folk and Other Good Music. Uh, So anyway, uh, to start here with the introduction that's written out here that gives you a good overview of the song, it says, uh, King Willie's choice of bride apparently does not meet with his mother's approval, and she puts a curse on her. Although come to full term with her pregnancy, she cannot give birth. The king tries to bribe his mother with various gifts, a fine horse and a jeweled belt. However, the queen has an ideal as to how to outwit the witch. Willie is to make a fake baby out of wax with glass eyes so that she can pretend she has successfully born a child. He then overhears his mother and her surprise gives away the details of the curse. There were witches' knots in the queen's hair. Her left shoe was tightly laced, and there was a toad, the witch's familiar, under the queen's bed. Hearing this, Willie undoes all the spells, and she is now successful in her deliverance. All right, so this is really interesting to go on about the hair. Uh, He notes brief clarification of the curse curses excuse me the knots of the girl's hair note the magic number in the ballad nine three times three and that's the number of knots by the way that they put into the hair symbolizes the constricting elements holding back the free-flowing birth of the child even today in some parts of scotland during childbirth the girl's garments are loose and unbuttoned without pins or fasting there's also an interesting thing here about the comb. The comb of care were pressed through the long golden hair accompanied by a curse each time and then left in the hair to hold in the curse. The hair is a powerful vehicle for curse making. Okay? So this appears, and I've seen some references to this, I think in a few other child ballads as well, and I believe that this is very much taken from folk magic uh within a lot of the um you know people from celtic heritage and so forth okay so as it pertains to this movie i think the significance of this and especially the fact that carissa's mother is so into hair indicates the true nature of carissa and that is that she is a witch and her mother is probably some kind of golem or homoculus that she has summoned because i mean she seems basically there to do the bidding of her and some of the other people that clarissa is working with and i find it in that context especially interesting that one of the main things that her mother does is go around and collect hair if i am correct and she is a witch 
that makes a lot of sense as to why her mother, if she is, you know, again, some kind of golem or something that Clitoris has summoned, would be going around and doing this. It would be a way for her to put curses and that kind of thing on various people. And this is, you know, again, really interesting in light of some of the theories that you guys have put out there with Milo. I mean, again, it's really interesting uh, that he's shown associated with voodoo, which is a kind of, uh, you know, Afro-Caribbean folk magic. So it seems like these two characters who are supposed to be Billy's allies and saviors at the end are respectively a witch and a warlock. And they both practice different styles of folk magic displayed throughout the film, which is, again, another just absolutely fascinating element of this whole picture. So anyway, that's uh, that's my theory on the uh, significance of the hair and Clarissa's character and the mother character as well. I, I, th- I think your theory makes a lot more sense, man. Um that definitely adds up. If I may, can I include one line from Clarissa that this film is known for? It's like kind of pop cultural history almost. Um, So in this film, so when Billy goes to Clarissa's house after uh, Ted Ferguson's party, um, he gets there and Clarissa says to Billy, how would you like your tea? Cream, sugar, or would you like me to pee in it? And most people just laugh at that and think it's just hilarious, which it is. But this is definitely a nod to the audience that she, her role is sexual handler. Like if she's willing to ask that question, what else is she willing to do? I mean, this is, I think, just either i can't remember it's after or before she slept with billy but um no this is yeah i think it's just after yeah it's just um yeah just after (laughs) and if she's willing to ask that what what else is she willing to do you know and i think that's what that's representing all right so how about the notion of role players in society? I know you got into this a little bit earlier, Clay, but uh, do you want to like elaborate on this now? Yes, uh, absolutely. Like one important point I made earlier is that I think Billy and the audience are meant to be the same people. And what I mean by that is throughout the whole film, Billy progressively gets worse psychologically And you are obviously worn down as an audience member watching this. And you as an audience member are seeing people playing roles as if this is its own Truman show. And it's really interesting that during the occult ritual at the end, when they're all shifting, and it's hard to describe, but Basically, they sacrifice Blanchard by eating him alive, but not like in the way that you think they would. Their skin merges with his, and they're slowly sucking out his organs and his skin. It's it's really gross. It's like nothing you've ever seen. But at the end, after I think it's after that, after Blanchard's dead, Dr. Cleveland in full 
Glasgow smile. And his Glasgow smile is almost creepier than the Joker's. It's really, really creepy. Because it looks real. It looks like somebody cut him. And he has a Glasgow smile. He comes out and says, he says, well, Bill, it's like this. There is no business like show business. And I do apologize. This was actually right at the beginning. So it's not, it's not after uh, Blanchard is sacrificed. It's, a, at the, it's at the beginning when Billy has a dog collar on his neck. He's on the ground. And it's at that moment that the audience has been pranked as well. And what he's saying is, why, why would he mention show business? He's, he's telling you that a lot of films are rituals. And he's also telling you about the film that Billy was basically part of a film in his existence, you know, outside of the film itself, he was in the Truman show. He thought Milo was his best friend. He was his handler. He thought Clarissa was, you know, going to be his girlfriend. She was a sex handler. Um, her mother's livelihood depended on it. Um, you know, Petri told him he was going to help him and he faked his own death and he shows up at the presidential debate. And what it reminded me of is, and the best example I can think of this is Elon Musk. And the reason I bring up his name is because everyone thinks he's a hero. He just bought Twitter. He's he's Mr. He's Captain America. People make ludicrous references to him being Tony Stark. And you know he's working with these people behind the scenes. You know he's going to make Twitter worse. You know, he's already talked to them about making a registry where you have to use your own identity, which I guess is fine if it were anybody else, but it, it's him. And then if you think about celebrity beefs, do those celebrities really hate each other? Is that a show? You th- talk about, you know, congressional hearings and impeachments and all this stuff, you know, these people are, are those real or are those show trials? Um, it, it just really makes you wonder. And the title society is just beautiful because it's talking about that. It's talking about high society in, in, in its greater context, film, politics, uh, uh, you know, Wall Street, you know, does Carl Icahn really hate George Soros or are they best friends? You know, uh are Trump and Hillary Clinton really mortal enemies or they go to the same rituals with Jeffrey Epstein? Um, you know, they did go to the Kentucky Derby together back in the day. (laughs) You know, it just really makes you wonder. And that's the, that was the eerie impression I got from the film when I first watched it is that they're showing you that there's this Truman show element about a lot of stuff we see in, in, in quote, high society, wall street, Hollywood, uh politics and that is what what i got from it and i think you see that with petri and milo and billy and all the characters um and that's that's all i got yeah oddly enough i kind of think the only other one who might be a little resistant to all of this is um Petrie, and I think that's because he's starting to realize he's being groomed to be a sacrifice at some point in his life. So, 
Um, yeah, I think so. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely, I think, very apt. Um, Sam, do you have anything to add to this? No, I, I think that was a, a wonderful analysis, Clay. I, I think I've read a lot of reviews on the movie, and it's easy to see it as just a social commentary, um, you know, of the wealthy elite literally eating the poor. Um, but I think it's it's much more than that. And, you know, especially if you know the background of the screenwriter, which I've really never heard referenced anywhere, um, that this is not just a, you know, this kind of surrealist fictional um, fantasy. It, it's a, a lived experience. Um, and I think for that reason, the film really resonates much more deeply and it's saying a lot more um, than just a, a movie could. We got one more thing here we wanted to I wanted to get into here before we wrap up, and that's briefly tackle the whole shape shifting aspect of society. As we further explore movies inspired by this milieu, we'll see that this is a major recurring theme. But what are your guys' thoughts as it relates to this picture? Um, Sam, do you want to start us off with this one? Yeah, that, that was one of the really unsettling visual aspects of it, is, is the way these characters would body morph. And I think the main uh, morph that you would see is basically their legs would be backwards. And I think this is a common motif um, in witchcraft um, iconography, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I, I think especially denoting like um, a pan type figure, um, I think the legs are often portrayed as being backwards. And uh, I, I think it's just an allusion to this idea that um, there's some anti-life aspects, some backwards uh regressive um element going on here and uh yeah the the ending scene I, I think you know the way they all morph into each other is just um i think expressing this idea that um it, it is kind of an entity you know and you can't really see um, these elitists uh, as being single individuals, it is a kind of group and it, and it does feel like it is um, just one entity morphing. And uh, it's really kind of scary to see it that way. Um, but I think this movie portrayed that idea uh, as, as best as, as any movie could. And I, I think the overt references to incest were also alluding to that. Um, that uh yeah th just this intermingling of flesh um is is what maintains this um horrific entity um known as as society all right clay well do you want to finish us off here with your take on the shape-shifting aspect i know this is a big thing for you so have it yeah no absolutely i think there's a subtle message here that is is implied in other films as well and that is shifting is not really the the matter of a werewolf or a vampire but that in order to shift as a human you have to do certain grisly things to be able to shift in this case it's his parents having incestual sex with their daughter and prostituting her off to elites in a party and God, God really knows what else 
you know, you have Clarissa, you know, creating some kind of golem character out of her mother. I mean, you really have to go to to really severe lengths to be able to shift. And what's also really interesting is there's another element to this too, which is the slug. And that's a really important thing in this film. And it's, it'd be one thing if it was just this film, but it's certainly not. Um, at in, in the film, at about 15 minutes in, let me find this scene here real quick. Um, my, uh, Billy goes and sees his parents and they're outside by the garden. And there's the Gardener Rocky. And he's an Asian gardener. I think that's maybe a nod to the Asian caretaker in Chinatown. And he has a metal platter and it's full of slugs. And the parents are just admiring them left and right. And we see later, uh, we see bugs throughout the film. Billy takes a bite out of an apple and he looks and it has festering bugs in it. And then at the end, when he turns uh, Ted Ferguson inside out, he's covered in slugs and other kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, like creatures like slugs and centipedes that are long and spindly and then in the howling uh when one of the reporters is at the colony and they're they're breaking out it was d wallace's friend uh i think her name was i think her name was terry she broke out of the house and, and when a werewolf was chasing her and there was an axe right next to a banana slug and there's no way i think that's coincidental and also in Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino, and I think Samuel Jackson wears it too. They're wearing UC Santa Cruz banana slugs shirts. And I just, you know, and they're, and they're trained killers. And you could argue they're trained serial killers and maybe are making reference to the Hand of Death cult. But Sam, I know that you, in your research, you, you, perhaps you want to talk about it. Um, there's an interesting reference to Santa Cruz as well through the banana slugs, but I think that the slug is perhaps used in some of these rituals. As is interesting as that may sound, I don't think that reference is coincidental. Um, and well, th- just to point out, when the Billy's parents, um, encounter the the gardener who has a literal tray of banana slugs don't they say something like oh this is a great harvest this year implying like they're going to eat them or (laughs) do some kind of ritual with them which is you know it's before things get really weird in the film and it's just one of those moments where you're just like what the fuck uh (laughs) yeah um yeah there was definitely something more to the slug and that can't be out of nowhere and it i i just don't think it would translate across many films like that that also deal with like the the howling deals with in howling it's not just shifting um yeah the howling is very much like one of the films you know we'll we'll definitely get into this one yeah yeah much more in depth too but this is also like another one that has a lot of references to this milieu that we're talking about Uh, absolutely absolutely so yeah the main message is that to shift you you have to do unspeakable acts and that's also known to the navajo who have a skinwalker legend you know many people ludicrously think that the navajo have that in their dna that's not true at all 
like in order to be a skinwalker you have to kill a family member you have to dismember a corpse uh among many other unspeakable acts and i i think that's what they're getting at here is that the the act of taking her sister to that party uh you know is part of how these people are able to quote unquote shift well, it's also interesting too to sort of uh, you know take this as potentially like a psychological um, state of affairs, like the shifting. Uh, to look at Peter Lavenda, one of the uh, premises he puts forward in the uh, Third Sinister Forces book, effectively is that serial killers were failed shamans who are unable to make the transition and had to essentially huh. manage the shifting through a sort of physical. Uh, manifestation through the mutilation of bodies and so forth and this was something that also the surrealists were indicating in their artwork which is again one of the reasons why so many serial killers surrealism resonated with them and what they seem to be mimicking it at least in theory again this is lavenda saying this so that in and of itself should uh, tell you uh, something so that's a very interesting aspect of all of this. And then, of course, we could look at this, too, from the werewolf thing, which we will, uh, going back to the sort of the uh, the traditions of the werewolf in Greece and its association with cannibalism and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, but one other thing that I want to point out here uh, right quick is shifting recently has entered the popular lexicon in terms of reality shifting which is apparently a big fad with the kids now and it's this you know again this kind of mental process where uh, you groom yourself uh, to implant these kind of stories in your mind that you go through in theory when you're dreaming and it's like um, you know you can put yourself into like Harry Potter, for instance, is one of the characters and have a dream where it seems like you've experienced four years actually living out the novels or something to that effect. Uh, but I mean, in some cases, the kids even use like videos with subliminals and so forth to get in like the proper mindset with this. So, I mean, I did find it interesting that you use the phrase shifting clay because it kind of seems like, you know, you're like looking at this from a psychological perspective you know this notion of shifting is being slowly introduced into the popular consciousness now through things like reality shifting in the younger generation and i mean i do think that this is relevant when we look at it in terms of like the fictional depictions of shifting but even maybe more importantly like some of the native american traditions of this as well so, yeah and i would i would argue that um the push for transgenderism uh, amongst the youth is another element of shifting. They're trying to shift um, biology. And again, I'm not trying to comment on anybody who is uh, transgender, but I just don't, I don't like the way it's being pushed on young kids and that you have that, that element of the Boston uh, medical center, who's having foster kids come over who are, you know, under 10 years years old and i i think that's a part of it as well well i think we've covered a lot of ground here gentlemen and uh obviously we will uh, be back here at some point hopefully in the near future to go into some other movies i mean there are certainly no shortages of this but you know again kind of playing into what clay has uh been alluding to with film as a kind of ritual um i certainly believe that the black 
Dahlia murder was a ritual on a lot of levels, uh, which is why it is a very strong possibility that filmmakers like John Huston and Orson Welles, certainly both of which were quite celebrated and influential directors, you know, there's a very good chance that they were involved in this murder and that it has continued to resonate and be referenced in a variety of films. Uh, to some extent, Chinatown, but I mean, certainly in the Elroy and De Palma films, but also in societies, I think we've uh, made a pretty good case here for, and we will look at it in a variety of other movies going forward, but I mean, also a lot of other things. I mean, again, there's just so much here, The as I kind of alluded to before, the ongoing use of Frank Lloyd Wright and uh, his family members, their accolades and a lot of the architecture that they did the intergenerational incest uh and again a variety of other murders uh, highly ritualistic ones that play into this of course in the earlier chinatown when i had gotten a bit into the manson killings and uh, natalie woods drowning uh you know again i think that this is also sort of a part of it so yeah we will continue to explore these dark corridors um but until we get to that, I will say, as always, uh, to you guys, well, first off, thank you again very, all so very much uh, for your support and for your listenership. And now on that note, I will say, as always, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash Honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 